know, externally turn off your your review prompt and then turn it back on right after it gets approved. Or yeah. use the Uber strategy, and if the IP address is in Cupertino, then never show the review dialogue, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 148 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California, Hello. home of WWDC. Yep. And I'm also joined by Greg Heo in San Francisco, California. Hello, from the former home of WWDC. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. And um, we also have Tammy Coron from West Tennessee. I see you're saving the best for last. That's right. That's right. All right. So hey. Hey, Jaime, do we have any Ask MTJC? We have a few. The first one up is by uh, Sean Marston, and it's, it says, uh, this has to be a pick of next week, which is now this week, a couple weeks later, so apologies for that. Shape of You, which is a parody called uh, Apple Forgot Me, hashtag make mm-hmm. Apple great again. Uh, it's a cute, cute video. Um, I think it, you know, pre-WWDC, maybe might have been a little bit more timely. I think folks are a little bit happier now, even if we're not super happy about um, everything related to the hardware, but it definitely, I think, has a catchy tune and it sort of captures the spirit of sort of people wondering, like, will we continue to get pro hardware in the future? Yeah, we kind of sort of got that answered last week in the form of the iMac Pro, right? Yeah, at le- you know, at least it's a sign, right, that, that stuff is moving and, and it's not the only thing. We're also going to get the Mac Pro at some undefined time in the future. Well, maybe they had a surplus of, of space gray paint, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, 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 they found a whole box full of spray paint cans that they could just use to, yeah. to cover it up, yeah. right? By the way, did you you see Sean Morrison's uh, Twitter icon? If you zoom in on that, let me take a peek. Oh yeah, it oh it went away. Yeah, it looks like he's wearing one of our wonderful World Tour 2017 World Tour show uh, T-shirts. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he did tweet out a picture of it, but I just happened to notice he's also nice. posing in the. Uh, with the good shirt on. All right. Oh, yeah. So he also has a uh, black box T-shirt, so which is good. Our favorite favorite puzzle game. It is the official game of the podcast, right? It is. And Roundabout, too. Oh, double. So more uh, Ask MTJC, Hermie? Yes. And, and two that I think are somewhat related in, in concept. So the first one that's up next is by Vic Hudson. It says, hey, MTJC podcast. And, and this is to Tammy, Paradox927. Maybe that ugly nav bar will make sense with a camera, proximity sensor, and um, speaker hole in the middle of it. So that's that's certainly possible. So we were mm. talking about the redesign of, yeah, relatively minor redesign of, of UI kit and how the nav bars sort of look a little bit more like Google material design style. We've got the, the really fat header, fat text. It's left aligned instead of being sort of dead center for the nav bar title and everything. And that's certainly possible because right now it looks sort of a little bit like wasted space. But if you can sort of say, oh, well, what if this becomes like uh, Andy Ruben's essential phone where there's, you know, more continued screen to the right. And also there's space for a camera of some sort and, and probably the, you know, the speaker output. It certainly seems possible to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about putting cutting holes in the LCD, but I just want to say that, um, I've rethought the, um, the large navigation bar and the, and the X, I think they call them large titles, titles in the headers. Um, and, and I think so because after doing research for my article, which is coming out in a couple of days, I guess, um, there's a big push on uh, um, 
accessibility. And that's where the whole trying to get people to use dynamic type is coming from. Um, because, you know, if people are setting dynamic type settings in their, in their preferences or in their settings, and we're not using dynamic type in our apps, they're, they're not able to take advantage of making the type larger and that kind of stuff. So I think it's part of all wrapped into accessibility as well as sort of a more open, clean design as, as a design community says it is, right? So. I mean, that's certainly possible. Um, I mean, it, it's been a little bit of change over the last several years since iOS 7 came out. But if you compare right, yeah. this design to um, not what iOS 7 shipped as, but the first beta, you know, as shown during WWDC, it's actually quite remarkably different. I mean, of course, it's a completely different font switching from Helvetica Noia to San Francisco, but also the Helvetica Noia stuff that they showed by default was ridiculously thin weight and, and quite the opposite right, of right. the Apple Music style, you know, fat header, round, dynamic type sort of world. Yeah, I saw, saw somewhere too that it's coming from the um, from the news uh, app. It's, I guess that's where the influence is in terms of like being like a title or a header in sort of that proper news format. So, and I think uh, last week I was trying to mention, I was trying to remember what it is about scrolling. Like when you scroll down the page, it shrinks down to like the more normal size of 40, 40 points, I believe it is, right? Uh, the size of the header. And that's from uh, the parallax effect is the word I was looking for last week on in web, web design, you know, where you see all these big logos and as you scroll down them, they kind of shrink to a smaller to get out of the way of the content, right? Sure, right, right. Yeah. So also, if you push something on a navigation stack where you have a back button or any, really any kind of left bar button, uh, it shrinks down to the style. Right. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I think when the other the other point about the footer is that when you rotate your phone to landscape, the footer actually uh, shrinks down. But so if you have an icon and a title or something there, they kind of stay on the on side by each, you know, sort of thing. But it's a smaller smaller size uh, footer bar at the bottom as well. Anyway, so what else we got there uh, as far as XMTJC? follow-up. So the last one I see on the list is by Mike Pollard, who's saying, with debugging over Wi-Fi, AirPods, and wireless charging coming, is it conceivable that the iPhone 8 will have <laughs> no ports at all, right? They've removed the headphone jack. The lightning port is the next obvious one to get rid of. You know, just no holes, right? We talked about the blowhole possibly um, being on there, but no, besides the Ocarina of Time instrument, um, it certainly seems possible, right? If, if you use like a smart connector type thing to, uh, you know, connect attachments to it, or if you use Bluetooth, or if you use, um, you know, wireless charging of just like put it on this little mat and it wires up very similar to like what the Apple Watch does, where you just connect it into the little like divot. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. you know, you don't plug into a port doesn't really matter which orientation as long as it magnetically connects you're fine that seems possible yeah totally yeah so it's funny though can i just say that i'm still not over the the audio jack being taken away from the iphone every day i bitch about the fact that i can't plug in regular headphones that's true that's true i don't really like wireless headphones can't stand them for for what reasons let's take a little let's take a little segue into that one because i have quite the opposite sort of experience where i don't miss them at all because i i use wireless headphones the vast majority of the time i think i I just, I like the, the sound quality a lot better with the wired headphones. Now, what I do, I got to tell you, though, every time I have wired headphones on, which is every time, and I do the dishes or, or I'm walking around the house or something like that, inevitably it will snag on a, um, you know, like a latch for a drawer or something, and the phone goes flying and the head go, headphones go <laughs> flying. So I do bitch about the wire from time to time, but I still prefer having the wire over the wireless headphones. I mean, do you think yeah. in like a blind, double blind test, you could tell the difference between like audio quality, Bluetooth headphones and wired headphones? Probably not. I think, I think the issue is, <laughs> no, I, I'm going to be honest with you. The, the issue for me is I had really bad experiences with 
Bluetooth headphones when they first came out. And yeah. it's kind of like, you know, you, you eat something when you're a little kid and you get the flu just randomly at the same time. And from that <laughs> point forward, you don't like that food. That's kind of yeah. how I feel like with Bluetooth headphones. And I probably I, should I mean, get over it. I, I would try them again because they have definitely gotten a lot better. I think with the Bluetooth 4 standard, they upped the, um, maybe it was 3 or 4, I don't remember. But one of the standards upped the sort of maximum possible bandwidth and the audio quality. I, they do. They did used to be really bad. Like back when we had flip phones and you had those little Bluetooth headsets that everyone was walking around with, you know, lighting up in their ear, walking down the street, looking like they're talking to themselves. Um, yeah, I would say they're they're way better. I've recently I got a pair of wireless headphones as well, and um, I don't know what it is about this apartment, but uh, yeah, I also snag the headphone cable on every single drawer pull in this place. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, they just drove me crazy enough that I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go wireless. But when I'm commuting, I still use a pair of um, noise canceling, like active noise canceling headphones that has a wire and uh, i really like that for commuting like on the train but wandering at home or just walking around outside not commuting then yeah i'm all about the wireless or yeah the wireless now too now what do you have because you don't have airpods right i don't have airpods i have one of those uh the beats x uh, they're still pretty recent um but you know a post apple acquisition and uh, they're pretty good i think they're on sale once um i don't know a few weeks ago i think they're still pretty new but they were on kind of on sale so i just picked up a pair and they've been really good yeah those are noise canceling ones, so you can't hear the noise of the train or whatever. They are not it, noise canceling; they're like noise isolating. I think is the term, like the ear. Okay. But it's not like an like an ear pod, like just kind of stick in your ear. It's got the little not foam, but the little silicone thing that kind of goes into your ear canal a little bit more. So they're noise isolating is the term they use. Right. Uh, right. But if I'm like on the train or or something like if I were on an airplane or something, they would not be good. So I have a pair of uh, active noise canceling ones for that. Oh, but so but if you're wearing those ones, you could still hear. A, 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 a fire siren or something like that fire engine siren right well you can hear that regard for, for both of them yeah, yeah yeah well that so my my piece on this is that i'm currently wearing a pair of skull candy bluetooth headphones but they're wired in because of the latency between mm. the you know why what i hear and what i'm saying we, we tried a couple of it early in our podcasting you know experiences i recorded once without them with with bluetooth and it was just too laggy and it was annoying for everybody on the call on the call mm. um but and also since we're we're bashing Apple technology and how they're pushing us into the future. Um, as you, I, I basically have been watching a ton of WWDC vi- videos for the last, you know, four or five days. And I had to do a couple at work today and uh, at lunch. So I had my, my touch bar Mac. And one thing I'll say is when I'm running a video in QuickTime with a, with a standard keyboard, mechanical keyboard, I can hit the pause button whenever I want if I'm in another, another application, right? But with the touch bar, if I'm watching the video and taking notes in another app, the touch bar changes to the, the note-taking app. And so I have no access to go and pause the video, which I would normally do with a standard keyboard, right? Mm, so. That's true. Wah, wah, wah. So enough ranting. <laughs> There's never enough ranting. Never enough <laughs> ranting. So everybody, we'll, we'll do like a, a, a GoFundMe for, to get Tammy some of those sweet wireless Beats <laughs> headphones over the ear with the w1 yeah i know the gofundme is for the mac pro yeah you're gonna do a gofundme to get airpods not either airpods or yeah we'll get her the beat text because those are both pretty good Mm -hmm. for my pro how about that sweet uh external developer kit for the uh gpu Mm. Mm. oh yeah that's like the price of like two airpods isn't it (laughs) Uh, yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> so does that only work on the new Macs, or does it work on any Mac, the GPU thingy? I assume it works on anything, because it's just Thunderbolt 3, right? Although I don't know. Oh, oh 3, okay. Yeah, so then yeah. it won't work on the older. It'll, it'll only, be, only be the Touch Bar Macs and newer, right? So, I or think I, I guess not. so. IMAX, does the iMac have a USB 3? I guess it must now. Hey, Greg's on the show. show. We can ask these questions. What, what, am I the hardware guy or something? <laughs> they do have those adapters, so maybe you could plug the developer kit into one of those 3 to 2 and plug it in, try plug it into your older MacBook. I don't know. That might work, too. Um, Did you catch last week's show at all? Because we, 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 we stumbled across a USB-C question, so... <laughs> well, I have read the entire spec, sure. So, uh, no, 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 no questions. <laughs> All right, okay. All right, so we have some follow-up items. Uh, one of the first ones was via via Farley, friend of the show, and uh, he retweeted or uh, commented on a, a Federici Vitici post um, about uh, from Mac Story saying that Apple uh, apps can no longer use custom review prompts. So these ones where you know they pop up and say "rate me." Apparently, Apple is mandating as of when uh, that um, we'll have to use their system as of ten point three. Does it say when? Hmm, doesn't. I, I, I just assume before. it's. Yeah. I assume the guidelines have been updated um, fairly recently, so I think they probably include that for new app review. Right. Yes, it's in the guidelines. You're correct. You are correct. I thought we knew about that a while ago because they were talking about the fact that uh, with the new rules on on uh, reviews, they would be able to limit the amount of times that you can request a review from a user. And so right. the only way that they can limit that is, is if you request to present some UI and Apple just chooses whether or not to present it or not. So I'm right. not sure right. this is this is new, but uh, maybe it's, it's now just finally going to Effect. Yeah, I just I just meant this news from the point of view that um, it's it's come to pass, right? Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to being something off in the distant future. Yep. Anywho, that's for that. I'm the link in the show notes for that one. I'm kind of curious how Apple is going to enforce this one because uh, I mean, there's one way they could you know choose the top 50 you know closed and open source projects that have this, um, and then do a binary scan and look to see if you've included that in your IPA. That's one way. Um, mm. The other way could be manually hoping that they trigger a review prompt and then, you know, bring the ban hammer on you if you do that. But, you know, the latter of those options seems fairly unlikely. I mean, you would, all you'd have to do is just, you know, wait until your app goes through review, you know, turn off, you know, externally turn off your, your review prompt and then turn it back on right after it gets approved. Or yeah. use the Uber strategy. And if the IP address is in Cupertino, then never show the review dialogue, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, in the few apps that we used it in the past, um, we wrote our own code. So for that, but um, we took it out because, it, frankly, it doesn't work. Like uh, we talked about this two years ago when we first started the podcast about you know getting getting people to write reviews for you. They'll write reviews if you put bugs in your app, but they won't write reviews if they love your app. I don't recall what we said two years ago about that, but hopefully I said the same thing now. Well, I will respectfully disagree about whether it works or not. I, I've seen it work fantastically. I mean, just thousands upon thousands of reviews. Um, you know, maybe not. Well, per, if you're per... black box, yeah. But but what 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 examples have you got of apps that have that you involved in that that you've gotten positive reviews well not one anymore but uh, when i was at offer up we were using that and we used it quite well and it, it, it basically meant that we wouldn't have to wait more than you know 24 hours before our app review account would go up again for every version oh really okay yeah i've, yeah. I've heard that too i don't i don't have any direct experience i don't have my own apps in the store but i had heard the same thing too that yes nagging people is sort of maybe feels bad but it works i have never really? heard okay. anyone with your experience hmm. tim saying like uh, that that doesn't 
doesn't work if people love your app. Because if you prompt them, especially, you know, they would always say you have to time it right. Like after their first yeah, successful. Yeah, that's a trick, right? You yeah. know, like don't just pop up like on first launch, you know, would you like to review our app? Like, no, the first time they clear a level or the first time they share something, then you say, you know, right, what do you think of right. our app? Would you like, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down? And then if you say thumbs down, it just closes it. But if you say thumbs up, it takes you to the store or whatever. Hmm. Um, so I've heard good things about it as well and that it does work as much as it feels naggy to people. Right, right. Yeah, speaking of which, um, what's going to say about that? Uh, or the other the other news out of the the new um, they talked about this on release notes um, that your uh, your stars or whatever your reviews status isn't going to reset every time you you uh, issue a new app now or I think you, yeah. you can choose not. I to think have it's an option, reset, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I mean, like you know, I, I I've got one app out there that's got one one five star review and then no reviews since, and like maybe seven versions, right? So so that one that one five star is buried and lost and lost forever, like tears and rain. You know? Yeah, I I really like the fact that you have the option. Like Apple could have said, oh, they don't re- reset at all, and I I can think of some scenarios where you might actually want to reset if things yeah, went horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, sorry, that was a bad version. Here's a new version. It's better. Trust me. Um, it's definitely one of those things. Like it's really appreciated because it's. A about time, right? Because it, it really stopped making sense a long time ago where it was sort of punitive for you to put a new app version up um, because you, you would end up with, oh, looks like you don't have any stars whatsoever. I mean, you could. I mean, users could see right, like, right. oh, it looks like there's other versions that have ratings. But for whatever reason, they decided not to put that front and center. It was very like in the moment centric, but in the moment was going to hurt you unless you did things like, you know, what we just talked about and, you know, pinging people left and right and praying that they'll give you a, a good review. View. We call that the ping and pray. Ping and pray. Now I wonder how flexible it will be. Whether it's it's all or none. In other words, you can have you can choose to have it the way it is now, where it's only the latest version, or you have to have all of your uh, your 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 old review, uh, reviews in there. Or will they make it flexible, where you can say I want to have the reviews from version one and version three and version four, but not version two? That sounds so unhappy, though. Yeah, I feel yeah. like it's just submit a binary, and then there'll be a, there'll be a checkbox reviews clear all yeah. past reviews and that's it i yeah, think it would just be that yeah i haven't seen it but you know which version that's like i, I don't know i don't see that right i have not seen itunes connect updated to have this review star thing or or maybe i just didn't notice it but if i can compare it to something they did announce and that i have seen is the uh, phased rollout where when i heard about that during oh, yeah. the platform state of the unit it's like oh, holy smokes that's that's awesome it's going to be like android where you can choose one percent and then if it looks good you can go to five <laughs> and ten and fifty and yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, no, yeah. it's on a particular schedule. I mean, the train leaves the station, the train leaves the station. Um, yeah. And it is good that they start out with reasonably small sort of numbers and you can halt the rollout from what I understand, but it's not as flexible as I would have hoped it would be. I was going to ask about yeah, that. Yeah, it's like here it is on rails and you can stop it and pull it, but, or you can pause it for like 30 days, I think. Is that how it works? Something like that. I've not, I've not actually yeah. tried out the feature. I just noticed it in iTunes Connect. Yeah, but I think so you could like, like if you want to roll out to 10 you could wait until it hits 10% and then hold it there for 30 days. But then, um, I don't know, I guess cancel it, submit a new binary or something like that. But maybe after you did that for a while, they would uh, get a little angry at you if you're trying to use it for some other other purposes. And there's also like, you, you can't pick what 10%, right? It's just 10% at random, I guess. They'll roll the die over there at uh, on the Apple servers. Right, right. So you can't yeah. use it like as an A-B test sort of thing. And mm. you're kind of beholden to the idea that hopefully they're choosing some sort of really good you know, statistical sampling method instead of you know even by random chance it just turns out that everybody is in michigan you 
know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but oh, they're great. They're using Arc for Random uniform, not regular Arc for Random. That's what I hope. <laughs> yeah, another, another thing that Apple could do, but it looks like they're not yet, at least I hope it's yet and not never, is uh, we now have the ability with TestFlight to have multiple builds up and right. active kind of at the same time. So there's really no reason why they couldn't allow us to do A-B testing with releases. So 10% get version A, 10% get version B, you know, 5% get version C or whatever. So you can do some analytics and see which one people like and then do the final release on, on one of the versions. Uh, they could do that, but it doesn't seem like they are. Right, right. Do you mean hmm. do that with public release, Mark, or just with among your test flight folks? With with public release, they could do it. Mm. Yeah, he's saying take it a step further beyond they the, could, the test right, flight. Right, right. Oh, okay. Hmm. That's, yeah, it's classic A-B testing of, of a new feature. Right. So do we want to talk about this next one, which is a scam, the $80,000 per month? Well, Tim, why don't you tell us about that one? Because I, I, I read it. Uh, I don't know if I read the Medium article, but I definitely read other coverage of it. And sure, okay. I was flabbergasted okay. by it. Yeah, so so this is uh, via Kim Elberg, friend of the show. I saw him on Twitter um, tweet about this, uh, how to make $80,000, right? Yeah, $80,000 per month on the Apple Store. And it, what it basically is, is, is Johnny Lynn relaying a story of how he got, got an app onto his, his uh, iPhone and um, it said, "Hey, you know, you can update your update with a subscription and get these new features and th- so on and so forth." And it turned out to be that what he in the fine print what he would would be signing up for would be a ninety nine dollar I think it was per month uh, subscription. So and apparently this this kind of app there's plenty of them out there on the App Store um, duping people into these you know nefarious practices and and developers are making and he found some I forget where he said it was but there was some place he. Could check uh sensor tower you could see um oh yeah it was it was promised to be a vpn to you know give you vpn service to such and such and so and so um you know which people are wanting to do from time to time um but yeah it ended up with yeah for 99 dollars for a seven day subscription and uh you can see that would add up over time right um and it was out of renewing right yeah of course yes yeah yeah. so um i'm just trying to find out where he said he got the it was like an app annie kind of thing he went to was an app annie though but uh, where he went and sort of calculated how much this guy was making uh, and you know and then he's at the very bottom of the article he says he searched around a bit more and found a number of uh, apps out there doing this kind of uh, having this kind of practice where they're they're duping people with <laughs> auto renewing subscriptions right it's hard to believe that apple's review process let that through but um uh it's well it's it's also hard to believe that it will continue for much longer now that it's out in the open right well this has been out for a week or so at least yeah yeah, yeah. so how many you were saying you saw some coverage of the same story out there yeah and everybody was just aghast at like okay if we're going to write these rules oh you know for user experience and you know we can't allow you to use your own custom review prompt but uh this obvious scam that legitimately hurts users and hurts the integrity of the app store yeah that's fine well we'll let that through and we'll somehow not notice it's been in the top 10 list it wasn't like uh you know a handful of people getting scammed and it's buried in some you know it's number 300 on some like really obscure unpopular list like no this was like top 10 of whatever its category was like paid or grossing or something i forget what the article said a top grossing productivity yeah you yeah. would think somebody would just would casually look you know like on a monitor next to their desk and say holy smokes what is that we need to get that out of the store in, meanwhile they reject my app my game because i use the word memory in it for the title go figure i mean their wow. their review process is so strange sometimes i don't necessarily understand it yeah, i feel like they're very good at like metadata like titles and description and saying the word android but actually launching the app like this is like the worst designed app as well 
like the text goes right to the edge. Why are, they, are these even standard buttons? It looks like a website or something. And it's like they're just looking at the metadata, but not actually launching it. Like a human isn't yeah, actually launching it. Yeah, but even the title was messed know. up. Did you see? Did you see the title? Like yeah, what is it like? Uh, there's like misspellings in the in the metadata description. The title has got like strange characters in weird places. Well, the spacing right. around the colons a little weird. But you know, if you just glanced at it, you'd be like, "All right, mobile prote- protection is a VPN." I mean, you would think like a VPN app would get a little more attention, like because it connects <laughs> to the network and it has more permissions to do that kind of thing. Um, it involves encryption too, theoretically, if it's a real. Yeah, VPN, you think it get a bit more yeah. of a, a bit more of a look as opposed to like a game or something. But um, anyway, it's it's very. Well, Virus Very scanner that that uh, in theory works outside of the sandbox supposedly. That too, that and that and, and the fact that it's got a high priced in app purchase like this, these yeah. are things that you would think would raise some flags. Like a ninety nine dollar recurring seven day subscription. It's like maybe have a look and because I remember when in app purchases just came out and you added one, they were very strict about reviewing the right, in app exactly, purchase specifically, yeah. right? And that seems to have also gone out the window. But again, you'd think a high priced recurring subscription would get an extra look yeah. so yeah. i don't know what's going on but greg you made the point that it doesn't seem like the reviewers actually even launch the apps uh i believe that that's true i do too because i've i've done tests where i've put in real-time analytics and i've had uh accounts test accounts you know mm. specifically for apple to, to log in and test it and mm. you know crickets uh tumbleweeds yeah they never get tested exactly yep. nothing We've ever done the same thing yep. yep i mean on the plus side app review is very quick and i guess it is all machine based maybe they have machine learning and it like flags certain apps, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I let's mean, hope I, they're not I, using CoreML because it's not looking very good right now. Where are they training these models what? on like on their iPhone 3GSs or something? Like, come on, let's use some real horsepower. <laughs> Hopefully, they have some real next gen Mac Pros there doing the uh, during yeah, the training. Yeah, a couple but, yeah. of threads on your machine there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, these would definitely be some some flags I would add to their automated system. Large in app purchases, and you know, looking for things that claim to, you know the word VPN in them or something should get an extra an extra look. I, I wonder if you named an app this is a scam and put it in if it would get through <laughs> <laughs> yes seal this app yeah exactly. i will yeah. buy uh, i will buy dinner not just the beer i will buy dinner for anybody listening to this show who can prove that they were able to do exactly that wow okay it was a pretty bold one hopefully i'm not getting anybody in trouble mm. for doing that but uh, well i was gonna say all, yeah all we're just podcasters we're not lawyers exactly. yeah exactly yeah. sue jaime lopez please um <laughs> yes all email goes to jaime please <laughs> so hey maybe maybe the reason why this got through is because apple was busy building Apple Park, which is now open, apparently. Ooh, good segue. Yeah, so they, uh, apparently, um, the reason why it was supposed to be open in April, and it's now June. Um, oh, sorry, video started playing in my ear here. But yeah, it's now June, and and apparently the, surprisingly, I can't, I don't understand how this could be Apple, but apparently the delays were over attention to detail. The door handles had to be just so. Exactly, and, and the wood and all that kind of stuff. The round pizza boxes were not quite sufficient. They were 10% too humid. <laughs> mm, that soggy crust, unacceptable. Yeah. It does look like a beautiful campus. It's shot really well here. Um, it seems like it might have been shot around the same time that if you've seen the Wired magazine article, or at least the cover of that magazine. Uh, oh, is there one with this mm. in it? Uh, it? It looks beautiful. Let's see if I can find it online. Um, it's a beautiful rendition of the, of the campus. Hmm. Yeah, you'll have to send me a link to that. Is that all solar panels on the roof? Yes. Pretty cool. They do get a lot of sun down there in the South Bay. This is, yeah, is that what they call that? South Bay, Mark? Yeah. 
I think it's kind of like in if you're in New York City and you call something upstate, everything north of you is upstate. So I think if you're <laughs> in the Bay Area, anything south of you is the South Bay, from what I've heard. Well, that's a very San Francisco point of view. <laughs> I know, I know. No, I mean, like people in Redwood City will be, or I don't know, people in uh, Mountain View will say, oh, we're not the South Bay. That's like, you know, Santa Clara or something like that. So that's what I mean. Right, right. Well, in, in Calgary, they call Saskatchewan in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Tim, yeah, so- I, I, I gave you the link for something we can put in the show notes for those of you driving at home. It's the exclusive Wired magazine One More Thing article cover where you see a very dramatic uh, overcast cloudy uh, skyscape. And then at the bottom, you see the like warp engine UFO looking Apple campus. It's a, you know, in the shape of a ring, but it's lit up again. It kind of looks like the Starship Enterprise sort of uh, warp nacelle lighting up. It is very beautiful and dramatic. It's got kind of a, like the movie 300 sort of tint. Everything is, has a very tan brown beige tint to it. So very cool looking. I still want to know if there's like a little car that drives around inside there or train or something. A monorail. Yeah. Cause it's huge. Mark and I were, Mark and I went and looked at it when I was in California on the world tour. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I couldn't, I couldn't on my iPhone six, I couldn't get the entire, uh, building in one shot, but apparently now using Coromel, I can stitch, uh, the images together, Coromel and vision, right? So, wow. Coromel does everything. It does. It's amazing. It's magic. It's amazing. All right. So that's it for that guy. Moving on. Where the hell's my notes? So yeah. Oh, this is you, Jaime. These are really ugly slides, by the way. <laughs> I, I, but I, I lived through this whole period, so I shouldn't say anything. Yeah. So this is um, in the show notes, some PDF versions of slides from WWDC 20 years ago, way back in 1997, when the Worldwide Developers Conference, which had all sorts of weird, sort of garish, very 90s colors. It wasn't the keynote black and white sort of uh, minimalist set. This was color everywhere. And it's, it's kind of amusing to look back in time and see like the keynote, which was done by uh, Dr. Gil Amelio, chairman and CEO of Apple Computer Inc., where the very first slide says, putting Apple's house in order, returning to profitability and growth, which sounds hilarious now because they're the, one of the most fantastic companies in the world in terms of, of profitability and growth. Um, you could switch over to the introduction to foundation PDF, which shows where does this fancy pants new thing called foundation fit. You know, you've got this wonderful block diagram where at the very bottom, if it was like a layered cake, you have power PC and then core OS. And at the very top, you've got the advanced Mac look and feel and sandwiched in between is Mac OS as a nice little blue block. We will disregard the Java L shaped brick right next to it. And then you have the yellow box open step based application kit framework yeah. and foundation framework where really interesting things like class clusters and its notification center run loops. These are wild and crazy new concepts for people in 1997. Mm-hmm. So really cool. Yeah, kind of like a blast in the past. That's about the time that Steve Jobs came back to Apple because in one of the slides I saw um, the next logo. I think they had just purchased this Next because it's like... Yeah, yeah right. it's on the slide. Yeah. Improved cash position. $1.4 billion after Next acquisition. Mm. Goal. Return to sustainable profitability by next fiscal, fiscal quarter in September. Good luck with that. Those were dark times, man. <laughs> I remember thinking Apple was like on the block and they were being you know, circled by sun and yeah, if you were an Ma- Apple fanboy back then, it was it was dark times. I like the word uh, Rhapsody coming back from the uh, classic Mac yeah. OS days. And also in the slide, addressing customer concerns, minimum DRAM <laughs> configurations raised to 16 megabytes. That's megabytes, not gigabytes. 
So yeah. even back in those days, people were complaining about not enough RAM. Right, right. Although we're like, what, a thou- <laughs> three orders of magnitude off now when people complaining about MacBook Pros having 16 gigabytes now as a maximum. Yeah, look, look at this slide here. 1997, year of the product, the new Macintosh PowerBook 2400. Uh, if you're out there wondering, oh, should I get a 13-inch? You know, the 15-inch MacBook Pro is really heavy. This thing is 4.4 pounds, and they're not ashamed to say it's 4.4 pounds. They're very proud of that. They they're, were proud of it. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, and a 10.4-inch screen. Yeah, 10.4-inch. Like the size of an iPad. <laughs> yeah. The small iPad Pro. That's about how big this thing was for the screen, at least. Oh, remember those monitors with the giant speakers on either side of the tiny screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a picture of one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 16 megabytes standard up to 48 megabytes with a 1.2 gigabyte hard disk that will... What is that external thing in the picture? Is that is that like the super drive or some kind of a optical drive? Oh, that, that big giant thing? That's a power PC. No, no, no. There's like an external something plugged into it on the slide. The one that which, Time is reading from. Which slide are you reading from? I'm on the opening keynote. Um, oh, that, yeah. That's a that's a, like a CD drive or a floppy drive, maybe. Okay. Because the, the, those Macs didn't have uh, floppy drives. You had, to, you had to use external drives for those. Or actually, they would slide in where the battery was, right? I was going to say, they had the floppy drive, but maybe this one didn't have a yeah. optical. Never had one of those ones, though. I've had the ones before and ones after. Hmm. If you look on the previous slide, they got the E-Mate, which was the last of the Newtons, right, with the keyboard there. And I don't think I have ever had a copy of 7.6. Yeah, and that power book in the photo there has an optical drive sticking out of it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what that is. It's maybe maybe that's a zip the, is drive? that like a... Oh, okay. Good old zip drive. Might, might be a zip drive. I thought it was maybe like an external hard drive or something, too. I have no idea what that is. Could be. Yeah. Y- y- okay. You can easily lose yourself in the looking back at the past. I think the, the last slide I'll point out is this slide way down. on It doesn't have slide numbers on here, so I apologize. I don't know how far it is. It's about three quarters of the way through the PDF. Internet opportunities. Bullet points. Mm. Platform neutral market. New application paradigm. Renewed interest in maintenance costs. Uh, this web thing might be pretty big if you can go back and tell yourself in 1997. Wow. If you go mm. a little further than that, they even have yellow box for Windows, if anyone remembers that, about yeah. possibly moving... Because Next was a cross-platform kind of a thing that ran on Intel PCs, I think, eventually, when they went to, like, OpenStep and PowerPC right. and yep. other things. Yep. So, yellow box, look at that. A Windows, classic Windows logo on this thing as well, which is uh, kind of nice to see. Interesting to see. And the old QuickTime logo, too, somewhere. Dark nobody, times. Nobody, nobody knew what was going to come in next. Yeah. But there was a thing called Copeland and Rhapsody was from, you know, um, same guy? No. I don't know. Can't remember. Yeah, but Aaron, it was, it was, that was OpenStep, Mark. Remember? And I think that the next WWDC, they, uh, Steve jobs came out and said we're killing open step and everybody started yelling and screaming at him yeah Do you remember that so vaguely yeah yeah well the next the next um wwc was the one where steve jobs came and gil emilio kind of handed them a mic and and basically steve jobs ran away with wwc keynote so yeah yeah those are definitely different days and for sure apple was a different company i think i've told you the story tim but the others might not have heard it um these days, Apple has a press event, and good luck trying to get anywhere near the place, right? I mean, you, you don't even think about it. But back in, this must have been 1997, right around when this when this uh, stuff came out, uh, I was living down in Santa Barbara, and somehow we heard that Apple was having some kind of a press event, tech meeting about this very stuff, Yellow Box and all that. So we just decided on a lark to hop in the car and drive up for it. And that's, you know, that's a good four-hour drive. So we just drove up, pulled into the Apple's parking lot, and we walked right in and got to listen to the press event and, and technical presentations. I mean, can you imagine doing that now? I mean, we didn't, no, no we didn't 
didn't sign no. up for anything. We didn't we didn't have any kind of credentials. We just kind of walked right in. Was that like building four at Infinite Loop that you went into? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Huh. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I got to visit that one in February, building number four. Mm-hmm. It's the only room you can only place on campus you can take pictures. Anywho, so that was twenty years ago. Well, essentially, we're just going to talk about um, what our thoughts and experiences are of WWDC 2017. Well, first of all, Mark was you know, hovering around, but Greg, you were inside the building. What did you think of the new event? Had you been before? This was my first WWDC. I'd been hanging around the city, AltConf, going to the parties in previous years, but this was my first time uh, beyond the gates. Right, right. You never snuck in before? I didn't have never snuck in. <laughs> so what do you think of the venue? What was uh, what the lines like? And uh, I don't really how, have how anything to compare it to. Too, but uh, the rooms are very spacious. Um, Looked like room for everybody at the keynote and the State of the Union, so that was good. Um, I think between sessions, you know, they wanted to get everybody out and I guess clean up or something like that. So if you left the room, right, yeah, uh, if you want, if you were like, I'm going to stay in this room all day because all the sessions I like are here, that you could you could do that. But if you left, then they wouldn't let you back in, and you have to line up again. So the really popular right, sessions yeah. were in the yeah. giant giant room, which was nice. Um, I think they had the similar thing at Moscow. Again, I don't know, but one of the halls. Hall one, if you were there, was like this giant, it was like a keynote-sized room, but just set up with tables and chairs with Ethernet ports and power, and you could just sit there and, you know, get some work done if you had to. But massive, massive room. Uh, and that's where they had the little scholarship lounge, and they would have food there at lunchtime and snacks and that kind of thing. So, yeah. I'd, again, I'd heard there was something similar at Moscone as well, but this room was, again, this was like keynote-sized. And right, it was right. just a room for people to, you know, plug in and relax or whatever. You know, very dim. It was kind of Apple story. Uh, <laughs> kind of very sparse and that kind of thing. That's also where they right. had a little yeah. corner of it was the company store that they, you know, brought in some merchandise and that kind of thing um so yeah lines were pretty good you didn't really have to line up for much except when they were like handing up pins or something and then there was like big lines for that but um very very spacious there was even i think room that they didn't use so they definitely could have gone bigger if they wanted to but it seemed like you know the rooms and the lab areas were nice and separate so it was easy to go between them and make your way around there was a very nice outdoor space which is kind of hard to find in uh if you're in the city so a lot of people were hanging around outside the convention center itself had like these kind of balconies terraces or whatever they called them where you can kind of sit outside and get some sun and you know the wi-fi was there as well so venue was pretty good i wish it were closer and in san francisco such a place but um the venue itself was nice and it was kind of downtown there was enough stuff i think i stayed within like four a four block radius of the convention center the entire time and there's enough you know coffee places and restaurants and things like that to go hang out too so um i think the new venue gets a thumbs up i think and i think all the apple folks because they tend to live down in san jose or thereabouts so i think they all like the shorter commute as well so um yeah i that's not where i live so i wish it were still here in san francisco but uh otherwise venue gets a thumbs up. venue in the area gets a big thumbs up two thumbs up for me so what do you think about the density of the schedule like that was one of the one of the things that i've always found at wwc there's always like unless you have a specific you know itunes appointment or a lab appointment i know you had to speak at, at uh, alt comp but it was alt comp right yeah, yeah um but um how did you find like in terms of like going from like you said would you park in one one room and stay there or would you bounce from one one talk to another and and what did you find about the choosing of talks to go to was it easy decisions to make it was pretty easy i don't think i got to stay in the same room whatever the talks that were interested happened to be in different rooms every single time so i had to get up and move around which is probably for the best um but um yeah maybe if they had had i don't know normal i should say like a normal conference like you go to you know 360 iDev or when i was at like swift summit or playgrounds they have like very very 
very long gaps between sessions, which is nice right. because you get out, they bring out some snacks and, you know, you can chat with other people and then go to the next session or you can ask the presenter questions in between was what they did, I think, at Playgrounds, for example. Um, here, the sessions seemed to either go long and there was like maybe 10 minutes in between. So you just had time to get out, try to line up for the bathroom if you wanted to, um, unless you were a lady, in which case you probably had no lines. Um, so yeah, the, it was definitely short in that sense, but this is kind of a different kind of conference where, I don't know, again, another conference, you might want that socializing, socializing time, whereas here it seemed like Apple just wants to get you in and out of the sessions. Yeah. So what did you think of, what did you think of alt conference since you were there for a short time? Yeah, it was very convenient. It's, um, as as, you, you were there visiting Tim, so you know, the convention centers there, there's two hotels on either side, one Hyatt and one is the, uh, Marriott. And I think alt conf was in there. So you could go from WWDC, didn't even have to leave. You could go through a door. They stuck a giant alt conf sticker on it into leading into the hotel and you could just head over this that was really nice although to get back into dub you had to kind of go around outside and a little you know because they had to check your badge and stuff but um, yeah i will point out that if you actually have a wdc badge it was very easy to get around apparently but if you didn't have one it was not so easy to get around yeah because a lot of the exits <laughs> in the street on the first couple days i think because michelle obama yeah. was there as well so they blocked off a lot of things and even if you like the ropes were kind of right up until the entrance of the hotel so if you tried to slip in the side door of the hotel like perfectly legal you're not going inside the convention center but they would kind of look at you and give you a look and that kind of thing. So, yeah, definitely not as easy to get around. And they'd be like, you can't go in this way. I'm like, I've got a badge. Why can't I get in? They're like, no, you got to go around and go. Anyway, it was a bit of a, you know, they're just being careful, I guess. Um, but yeah, AllConf was good. I think there were two rooms, so there were kind of two tracks running. Again, very close right next door. If you kind of sat in the hallway, you could even pick up the WWDC Wi-Fi if you wanted to. It was that close. Um, but yeah, I didn't, did I go to any other sessions? I don't think I went to any AltConf sessions, so apologies to other to fellow speakers there i just went to my own and kind of hung around after that um but looking at the list of talks some of them were pretty sounded pretty interesting so i'm definitely going to check out some of the uh some of the videos um from that like i think daniel steinberg was speaking who i think i always enjoy his talks Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that one sticks out i can't remember what else but there are a few other ones that i thought um yeah i want to check that out Uh, they also ran the community space so there was sort of two tracks and they had like a little lab space that people could um rent out i think like buddy build had one the swift coders podcast did a thing um i think all comp did that a few years ago and the raywenderlich.com folks went and had a little lab session um they didn't do that this year i think um the timing wasn't that good but um so yeah two tracks and a sort of uh meetup space that so was kind of cool cool all right they also had a little vendor fair uh, outside the the, uh, the the main hall mm-hmm. um did, did you get a fidget spinner a mark no, I didn't get one of those. No, you didn't I got get a t-shirt. one. Oh, okay. No, I got a t-shirt. Um, my BM actually, a Katura t-shirt. There, there weren't a huge number of people uh, presenting, but you know, there were probably about ten or twelve companies presenting stuff. Those were always interesting. I think our friends were from Buddy Build were there. I remember IBM, um, mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft Firebase folks was were there. there I think. Showing, yeah, uh, Microsoft. Their new stuff. Their Visual Studio for for uh, Windows or for the Mac rather. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I like that program a lot. Which one's that? Visual Studio for the Mac or VS Code. I I think is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What context are you using it in? If you can talk I, about the project. Oh, well, yeah, I can. I'm using it for unity programming. That's the code editor that I have hooked up instead of mono develop, which is a, not a very good, 
not good for my uses. Other people, they might like it. I don't really like it that much. So I switched over to VS Code for Unity development, and I love it. <laughs> All righty then. Cool. So let's uh, let's talk about WWC. So what uh, what sessions did people watch? Which ones did they like? What did you what did you come away with from the whole week of WWC? What little you could put put up with? Well, I was really impressed by all the machine learning stuff. Uh, no big shock there. Both of the Core ML sessions I thought were really good, really informative. Uh, also, the the Vision one was really good. Um, AirKit was was also pretty good. The talk I think the technology is, is really interesting. Uh, and and Core ML. I mean, it, it's well, I was just talking about. The, the conference itself, Cor- or, no Coromel in, in general. Like, I agree with you; it's totally off the hook. I'm, you know, having yeah. having watched the videos myself a couple of times now. Um, I'm really impressed by Apple. You know, listening to you go on about uh, no offense, but you go on about <laughs> uh, about machine learning for the last you know six months or so, and seeing all the resources and trying to trying to follow along, and and Apple comes along and says, well, you just you know pick a model you want to use, drop it into your drop it into the converter, convert it into a Coromel model, and and then you know a couple of lines of code, and you're recognizing hot dogs, you know, yeah, or flowers, yeah. or or you're you're uh, dealing with handwritten handwritten speech or whatever, right? So yeah, yeah, this stuff is amazing. Even uh, where I'm working now, there's there's some real real experts in machine learning, and they were even impressed at this stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just wow. how easy and turnkey that Apple made. Yeah, so yeah, I've already written an app, but just a you know a play app, um, but it was it was yeah, you know, just a, took a couple of images and and car- uh, categorized them. Uh, to get you know get the keywords out of it using one of the built-in models and it was just so easy i couldn't believe it it was it was i mean the, the core of it was maybe 10 lines of code to do the to do the uh the characterization part it's I, i'm super super impressed i plan on using this stuff a lot what about the rest of you what are you, what are you gonna come away come away with i went to a lot of the lower level talks like um app startup uh what's new in llvm understanding undefined yeah. behavior which was excellent um that's just kind of where my interests are these days but one thing i wanted to bring up for the group was was um, sort of looking at what Apple highlights, especially since you know iOS is kind of the core of, of the company now, and probably for for for, for us as well. Um, based on what they highlight, what can we guess about what the iPhone eight is going to look like? Um, so I just had a couple notes on that. I don't know if you guys picked up on anything. I think one I saw somebody tweet about was the whole thing about safe area insets um, right. and how mm-hmm. it's like, oh, maybe it's going to be edge to edge, like that kind of thing. They also like highlighted drag and drop a lot, which we saw on the um, on the new iPad, that in ProMotion. And I think the other thing I wrote down was the focus of um, dynamic type and the new font metric stuff. Right, so again, right. thinking like, is there going to be a different screen size or a different screen resolution? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think when the iPhone 5, the different size came out, maybe when the Plus first came out or something, there was like, hey, you guys, you know, you should all be using auto layout. Look at this. Oh, it's a square in your storyboard, but we don't have a square device, but you should just be designing generically, you know, hint, hint. Mm-hmm. And so I'm <laughs> Just as a curious, you know, just as a fun thing, I was like, are, is, was there anything else that stood out as like something they were really focusing on that might give a hint to what's coming in the fall uh, hardware-wise? Mm. Well, based on the the comment you guys were saying about the no ports, I was going to say this earlier, that maybe they're going back to the old style of Apple where it's a hermetically sealed device and you can't mm. really get into it, you know, so for the lack of ports. Um, yeah, same as you, same as you, um, I tend to gravitate towards the debugging uh, talks. I really like the Xcode debugging one. Uh, some stuff I already knew, but some new improvements. Um, LLVM talk was good. 
Um, I looked at some of the Sprite Kit stuff as well. Um, I know Tammy was uh, interested in some of the um, Sprite Kit and Scene Kit stuff with with uh, the new features. What do you think about that, Tammy? I really like the. I think it was moving beyond 2D and Sprite Kit or something. I probably should have looked up the title. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. one of the talks on a Friday, and you know, just some of the incredible things that they were doing with augmented reality and combining Sprite Kit and Scene Kit. Now you could combine those two before, but very few people were doing it. And the the demo that they presented in that session was fantastic. Like they created a platformer game, for example, and they laid the game down on the table in augmented reality. And then what they did was bringing in scene kit. They like, I know you can't see what I'm doing here, but imagine like laying your hand with your palm up on the table and then raising your hand up towards you so you could see like the 3D aspect of the platformer game. And then they took it even a step further and completely blew my mind when they broke apart the different elements of that platformer. So like they would have the foreground, the middle ground and the background, for example, and they split it apart and you can like, you know, use your iPhone and or iPad or whatever you were using and kind of like spin around that with your camera and see the empty space in between those three sections. And it was just so absolutely incredible. Like my mind just went all over the place thinking, oh my goodness, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. <laughs> yeah. 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 I watched the design with sound uh, video as part of a, which is really interesting because it, it talked about all the different um, ways that sound can um, enhance your app, your user's experience just in terms of like clicks and notifications and stuff like that. And uh, they put it, he put an emphasis, the talker speaker put an emphasis on um using unique sounds for your app to sort of differentiate it from another one, not just falling back on the default sounds that come with the OS. And uh, he actually also had, there was a bit of a reveal there. I'm not going to spoil it for people, but um, if you watch that video, he showed how some of the sounds that are currently in iOS were actually made with physical devices, I'm going to say. So it's kind of interesting to see how those, those uh, you know, like live performance of those those uh, sounds. Um, but that was a good talk too. And the Care Kit one was interesting too um, in that, uh, they've um, wait, wait, they've got wait, a sort one? of care care kit. It was oh, care kit okay. with research kit. Yeah, it's a, surprisingly it's got it's it's almost like you know you, you know how when um, we were talking about custom controls last year or t- maybe two years ago and people were saying well you can import Sprite Kit into your app and then take make use of some of the, the enhancements in the in Sprite Kit framework you know with the nodes and stuff like that to animate things around on your screen or create properties. Care kit has some interesting controls and some um, glyphs that they have in in the framework um but some of the you know like they've got the you know the dial controls where you have like a circle like almost like on the watch where um you can have you know progress displayed in a circle um and other ways of measuring things and and um but it, like you know with a couple of lines of code and uh, you could take these i'm just we're spitballing here take you know import care kit into your app and then make use of some of the ui enhancements that are in there but but the care kit prototyping tool is designed so that non-professional people like people in the health health industry can build app prototypes without having to know how to code, which is kind of a cool concept, you know. Um, not quite drag and drop, but uh, some interesting stuff there, right? So I really like the, the debugging. I think you were kind of sort of alluding to that, Tammy. You know, you can you can debug uh, scene kit scenes now in the visual debugger, and then you can you know turn them around and you know, save them out and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that that was another thing that I really liked was all of the Xcode enhancements, including that one, the the 
visual debugger. I think that, um, and, and I think I said this on the last show because people were tweeting about it, but running Xcode 9 beta, it feels like you're not running a beta. It's so clean and so not broken. Right, right. Syntax highlighting continues to work at all times. Is that what I'm hearing? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that indexer running in the background is pretty cool. Yeah, see, you yeah. can overlook certain little things when other bigger things are, are working. And in Xcode 8, there were other bigger things that were also not working along with the syntax highlighting not working. So, yeah, I can look the Has other Has anyone way. had a chance to try out the version control stuff in, in the new Xcode yet? Wait, stuff with GitHub, you mean? Yeah. No. Nah, I don't yeah. use Git. No one uses GitHub anymore, so yeah. Except for Jaime. Jaime uses it. Oh, okay. We use it at work, but I've not had a chance to try it out um, on my work machine. Uh, in fact, I need, I need to download the beta at some point here uh, before the next one comes out at the very least. Um, so I, I've not I've not tried it out, but I'm, I'm very interested in it because, you know, my current workflow is to use, uh, I, I try to use the command line a lot for, for things just because mm, there are some scripts that I've written that are like really handy and easy to use. And like, I trust them to do certain things and the command line never lies, which um, visual editors can. But sometimes uh, seeing visual sort of representation of what's going on, particularly if I'm going to do, um, you know, individual lines that are committed instead of, you know, changing a whole file. I might, you know, say, okay, well, I've, I'm, this is kind of messy, but this part is ready to go. So I'll, I'll make a little patch commit for this. I use Git Tower for that because it's really good for that. Um, cherry picking is really difficult to do on the command line. It's easy to do with Git Tower. In any case, this is a really long-winded way of saying that integration with GitHub and, and, and deeper integration with that is interesting to me because I don't like having to change tools to do that, right? Just like... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never had to deal with this because I came in when Xcode 4 and everything was grandly unified. But it sounds like it was a real hassle to have like, oh, go use Xcode for this. Oh, you want to do some UI stuff? Great. Go to Interface Builder, a completely different app to do some stuff and then come back. Yeah. Like I want it all right. integrated yeah. in together. Yeah. Linking the classes in, in Interface Builder back then was really, I, I could never get my head wrapped around that, you know, it's really weird. Yeah. But I mean, same, and, and you know, I've been using Git in or sort of the source control with Git in Xcode for um, since it start, started coming out. And um, so I tend to, I tend, it used to fall back on, I shouldn't say that now because now I'm using Source Tree more, but I used to fall back on, I used to use Xcode's Git handling uh, as opposed to going to the command line only when I needed to do specific things that, that it couldn't do, like uh, hidden files and stuff like that, right? But um, what were you going to say, Mark? I'm pretty interested in it too because I, I like the idea of having a, an integrated version control tool. I'd, I'd be a little bit wary of trying it on, a, on anything that's beta uh, because, you know, it's it's so easy to get your, your repos messed up. But, uh, but I have hopes that, that this will be good. It'd be great to be able to do things like cherry picking or, or rebasing from Xcode, things that you just can't do today. Is that in there now? Or? I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah. why I'm asking. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Hmm. I think, as I mentioned, just the, you know, on GitHub web, the open and Xcode button alone saves me time when I'm doing research on some sort of third-party components. Like, well, let me see how they did this. And it's got a little bit hard to see from just the source code viewer that you have in GitHub. You want to use Xcode so you can get documentation and be linked to other things that are being used, find, um, you know, usage hierarchies, that sort of thing. Uh, that will save me a lot of time because it'll it'll be easier to use the tools. Like, oh, okay. Let me clone this thing. Or, oh, let me go download this thing. All right, it's finished. Now let me go into Xcode and open it up. You just open it right there. It's so easy. Right, right. So overall, in terms of WWDC, what did you think about the delivery of videos? I mean, like, I think last year we had three rooms at a time as opposed to five this time. It was a little, little bit little much in some cases. Well, what did the first couple of days it was only three, but then it right. changed to five. 
that movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it seems it seems like they did a pretty good job at uh, taking the the topics that most people were more interested in and, and putting them at the beginning where there were, there were fewer options. I think for the most part. Yeah, I feel like there's an art to that for conference organizers and being real cognizant mm-hmm. of that. Of like, okay, here's this thing that you know it's important, but it's kind of um, a little bit more esoteric. So maybe yeah. we don't put that you know against another sort of esoteric thing. Let's let's put that against this huge thing that would have been like in the Presidio, right? Like drag and drop. Everybody wants to know about that. Great. That's one of the top ones we should show. Um, what's new in securing WK WebView in a scenario where you're an online retailer? Okay. That one, you're, you're going to Friday right? <laughs> for people who are like, right. they really want to <laughs> see it. They'll, they'll go find it. But uh, otherwise, let's save the big hitters and not put the big heavy hitters, uh, hopefully. like Against each other. Yeah. Like don't put core ML against, you know, augmented reality. It's like, oh, well, right. it's a Sophie's choice here that I have to make as to which one I'm going to watch now. <laughs> so I, I just want to focus in on one thing you said, not to take offense, not not to attack you on it, but you mentioned drag and drop. There were five sessions on drag and drop. It seemed like Apple really wants us to pay attention to drag, drag and drop. And, and as Greg alluded to as well, maybe there's a reason why, but wasn't there too much drag and drop? They were very, very heavily pushing it at all the sessions. Um, yes. And everybody was recommending the Apple people I follow on Twitter were like, you should totally check out drag and drop. Um, but I think it's one of those things where people are going to, like users are going to get used to it very quickly. And if your app doesn't have it, then it's going to be like, this app is broken. I feel like that could be it. <laughs> and, you know, the whole multi-touch universe that's finally come to pass. Um, so I think that's why they're doing it. And I think it's easy enough that like, oh, you have a standard table view and it's just going to work. Uh, they said something similar right. like, Right. You know, if you're running a Mac app and you use NS Document, you get all this syncing stuff for free, all the sharing stuff for free. Uh, so I think it's one of those things. But for people who like mm-hmm. their little custom drop animations and drag actions and animations and that kind of thing, uh, I think it is not, I wouldn't go as far as to call it like, you know, a new user interface paradigm in an announcer voice, but I think it's close. So they really were pushing it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do feel like if you, yeah, if your app doesn't have it in a year, I feel like it's going to be very obvious, I think. Take a sort of cynical view of it. There there really wasn't all that much in terms of new UI features in, in iOS this year, mm-hmm. iOS 11, right? There was no big new thing like we have collection views now or, or, or That's true, custom, yeah, yeah. custom view controller transitions, you know, there's no big, big thing. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's a, certainly a sign of, of the, the technology maturing, you know, it's, it's kind of gut everything it needs for the most part. Um, but maybe there was a feeling that there wasn't enough to talk about in, in terms of, uh, of UI uh, in, in iOS 11. So they had to emphasize what they did have, which was drag and drop. It was like a snow leopard year, right? That's what people are saying as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the iOS 8 year where there wasn't a whole lot about the core language, but there was all the fr- all the new frameworks. That's mm-hmm. when HealthKit right, came yeah. out and HomeKit came out and all these different things that were not core, but they were more application level frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've not gotten to well I've, i still have a huge list of videos I've, I've hardly gotten through any of them at all but i haven't seen the drag and drop ones and I'm, I'm a little bit curious to see kind of to your points about you know is it really five videos worth of content or could it really been like two you know um i'll, I'll take a look at, at these and, and sort of re- try to render opinion after the fact but um somewhat cynically i could say well uh well yes it is a really nice user experience enhancement it's right now very heavily predicated um on being oriented towards the ipad so some 
cynically, I would say, well, they really, by golly, want to sell a whole bunch of these really nice iPad Pros because <laughs> that's not been looking too good for the past couple of years that we've talked about. So anything they can do to get developers excited about developing for the iPad, I think, is going to get front and center at WWDC. Yeah, they seem to be more in the in the platform and the key and the keynote about you know the, like as our friend Aaron used to say, you know, there sort of needs to be a sort of pro experience for these larger iPads, right, or faster iPads. And so there was a lot of you know there was that little application dock where now you can have a floating application dock that may lead to the fact that there may not be a, a dock in the bottom of the the new iPhone coming out. Um, and and you know so I guess the drag and drop was sort of I think the multitasking of having two apps side by side. I, I heard Joe talking about this on release notes, so kudos to him. But uh, uh, th- there wasn't really a people. I don't know if people are really using side by side apps. I mean I don't. Um, if I do, sometimes it's by accident. But but now that you have this ability to move content from one place to another, maybe that's where, you know, trying to get people to adopt using the iPads in landscape mode and have two apps open side by side and, mm. you know, buy into that whole sort of, now you can do this stuff. And and one of the things in the drag and drop session, they, one of the ones I listened to, they talked about the fact that you now have to be cognizant of the fact that your data may not only resist, live within your your uh, your app, You may your data may be picked up and, and shared by other apps now, right? So That's interesting. I saw it the mm-hmm. other way around where I, I almost saw it as an acknowledgement that people don't use side-by-side apps but that's, that's, meant, that's yeah. well they don't but they're like okay people aren't using this and this drag and drop thing isn't going to help so instead we have to we have to make sure drag and drop supports the hold on to these items hit the home button go to a different app and then let go and they demo that right. to say ooh, you know going between full screen apps um so i almost I, I guess also cynically i don't know not cynically but i read it as more of a, a defeat of saying all right this side by side thing app the side by side app thing looks cool demos well but people aren't doing this in real life if we allow drag and drop only between side-by-side apps then that's like a failure we have to support the whole hold this down for a really long time you know go through the app switcher use that app switcher thing or use the dock and then let go in an entirely different app because i I think it's almost like that's the way people are going to do it not the side-by-side thing although that makes for a good demo it's a bit Um, like twister for your fingers though watching them do that right like they've got you know the the you know middle index on the red dot and you know yeah ring finger on the blue dot and i I did try it it's more natural than you would think if you oh really okay yeah 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 yeah. like it looks complicated but it totally feel i mean i realize i do that on my um on the mac on the trackpad where i will like right select some things i'll hold it down with one finger but then with two additional fingers i will like do a scroll and then i'll let go once i scroll down i'm like wait a minute i was holding something and scrolling you know this is amazing so i think it's and you know that's on a stupid trackpad whereas i feel like on an actual piece of glass you know like an ipad touchscreen it's uh, yeah it's completely natural i don't think you would you would notice it at all that's an interesting insight because i i totally understand what you're talking about because i do do that all the time and i had not correlated these two together mm. interesting yeah okay so it does sound like it's a little bit more of a natural sort of feel especially because i mean the trackpad it's i don't know what is that four it's inches like indirect right yeah wide and you're, you're, you're not touching screen. the screen yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so again i think it's one of those things where if your app doesn't like you know support something being dragged into it it'll be like oh this thing is broken um so well, yeah and the non-cynical part of me would say that's why they were highlighting it so much because they're like no we have to the whole ecosystem the whole you know stable of apps we we all 
have to move on this together because we all need to drag stuff into each other's apps. So let's all go on, get on board the train here. Um, but if that does work, then I think it will definitely be a, yeah, like a leap forward, you could say, in uh, iPad Pro productivity. And that, that said, I mean, enabling drag and drop in in, um, in your apps from what they talked about in some of the sessions I did watch seems to be just as simple as adding CoreML to your app, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I mean, like you, you know, you, you create a drag drag event and, and then uh, grab your data and then and then you, somewhere has to catch it, you know? So it's, it's sort of like three steps kind of. Everything seemed to be three steps this, this time around, right? That'd make a good talk title. Add drag and drop to your app in three easy steps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You won't believe step number two, five exclamation points, something like that. That sounds like it'd be a good title for a talk. Take it out of the box, plug it in. There is no step three. Wasn't that an app? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, I got a, I've got a, a, a sort of techie question for you guys because it's kind of eluded me when they talked about it and I've watched the video a couple of times now. So what is this key path thing that they're talking about with the backslash literal? So, Tim, maybe we should segue into uh, another topic here that I have uh, in the show notes about what's new in Swift 4 because oh, okay, sure. that is important to what's new in Swift 4. Okay, give her. All right, so this is uh, on RayWenderlich.com. It's an article by Eric Cerny. Kearney? I don't know how that's pronounced. Kearney. Um, Although you Kearney. should say Cerny just to make him angry. <laughs> Although he doesn't listen, so it's okay. <laughs> it, it, that's the sort of thing that, like, as a little aside, I, I like to say Facebook Live and Instagram Live because <laughs> <laughs> because that that's the way I read it for, for reasons that are unclear to me. Um, in any case, so what is new in Swift 4? Uh, lots of things. So strings have had a lot of love and attention paid to them. Uh, once again, they, um, they act more like collections. So you can do all sorts of uh, collection type things to them. So you don't have to do that weird, like, oh, let me get like the characters array and then do stuff on that. Like, no, no, no. You want to drop the first character? Great. You can do that. You want to reverse them? Great. You can do that too. Hey, you've just passed uh, a whole bunch of coding interviews for different companies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> dictionaries and sets. I think this is, might be one of my favorite things that they have ways to handle uh, duplicate keys. Um, filtering is a whole lot smarter now and that you don't get the weird array or tuple sort of things. Like, look, just take this dictionary and just prune everything out of this dictionary that I don't care about, and, but continue to have a dictionary, right? I don't want to reconstruct one. Um, and dictionary default values, which has been one of the like most terrible things I've ever had to deal with. It's like, all right, uh, what happens if this thing isn't here? Well, we want it to have some default value. Like, all right, if there's nothing there for this, uh, put unknown uh, or happy fun time or shamalama ding dong. Who, you know, it's up to you. Um, the more controversial one, which I think I'll lean a little bit on, on Greg on uh, over here, is the private access modifier where right, private yeah. and file private and sort of private, but not really private all existed yeah. in this quantum state. And, <laughs> and now it, it, the way I'm observing them changes their behavior. It's yeah. True. Like, it, right. <laughs> and, and, and as they mentioned here is like, well, you know, you, you kind of tended to want to use private, but if you use sort of, you know, swiftly best practices of doing things in extensions and then making them small and concrete that actually worked against you. And you're like, Oh, that sucks. I can't access this because it's considered separate. So, well, I guess I have to use file private. And, and it sounds like now, now you actually can go use private and, you know, throw to the wind or, or for the SDK and uh, API developers, they can go use file private for their reasons. But for the average, you know, blue collar, you know, lunch in a, in a lunch pail and, and coffee in a mug sort of thing. Um, I think private is the way to go is what I'm hearing here. Yeah. So file private kind of, I just wrote an article on this. So file private um, was a, would basically open up access in the entire um, source file, whereas it was private. Now you can, you can, you can cross between two extensions and, and share uh, elements. But um, whereas the, the solution before was to do file private, which would open it kind of up. And that's kind of not what you 
wanted to do in a best practice. So yeah. using private keyword now allows us to do uh, more things within a Swifty way using extensions, multiple extensions in our in our source file. Yeah, the way I summarized it in the uh, I had to look it up in the newsletter was same file, same type, need access, private. Same file, different type, need access, file private. So it's kind of mm. I don't know the name they they kind of kept the names I think for historical reasons, but uh, that's the idea here. So it's always within the same file, always within the same file, but it's whether you need sort of access to this thing from outside the type or not. Um, so yeah, so the names aren't great, but yeah, that's the idea now. Cool, cool. Um, I think we mentioned uh, archiving and serialization in the previous episode about how JSON encoding and decoding is a particular flavor of that has been enhanced way, way easier, way, way easier. I'm, I'm shocked at how much easier it is in still being <laughs> in a type safe way for Swift. Um, and then Tim, the thing that you're asking about key value coding, which I think folks have used before where you can do all sorts of wonderful, cool, magical things with saying, oh, I know that every one of my transaction uh, objects has a property called, you know, amount. So I can use all sorts of nifty, cool things to say, oh, uh, give me an array that some, uh, sums up all of the amounts in this, in this array, right? For every transaction. That was cool, except for what if you say, you know what, instant amount, it really should be, you know, happy fun time. Who, who knows, right? Like you, you change it for reasons. It's like, well, now that stringly typed key value coding immediately broke and you had no idea it was broken um, until you, you know, had something bad happen in your app. Or if you were doing like, you know, test driven development, your test failed, and you're like, oh, what's going on here? Oh, it was somebody renamed that thing. Now they have the um, key path stuff that you can have a strongly typed way of having a reference to that path, right? So, um, uh, they give an example here where it's like, you know, somebody is a force user and they have a lightsaber um, and that lightsaber has like a color. It's like, well, I can get a key path to slash, uh, which slash is that? Backslash? Backslash. Backslash. Yeah. Force user dot lightsaber dot color. And, uh, you know, if I was to go in and say, oh, you know what? Instead of lightsaber, S-A-B-E-R, let's do it the British style where it's S-A-B-R-E. Well, if you went and did that in the old way, that would have just broken and you would have been like confused as what's going on. Uh, now, my understanding is this would be a complex error. So the compiler itself could tell you, hey, by the way, this doesn't match, right? Expected saber and got sabrur. That's kind of it in a nutshell is the way, um, the way I understand it and, and how cool it seems. So you, you still have all the power of key value coding, but now it's not stringly typed. Very similar to, oh, I see. Right, remember right, when they did okay. the, like Swift could call selectors on objects, but it kind of sucked because it was stringly typed, but you can now do the pound selector and it gives you the strongly typed version of like, yo, I'm guaranteeing that there is something here that I can call from a method stem point. Mm -hmm. cool. And of course, the other one, um, there's many more in this article, but the one I wanted to point out, because I know it's Tammy's favorite, is the multi-line string literals. That is my favorite. That's the best one ever. <laughs> I have a lot to say. It allows me to ramble a whole lot easier. <laughs> Tammy, would you say it's awesome? No, I'm, don't make me throw a punch okay. in <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it an epic, a two thumbs up epic. All right. Okay, oh, look at this awesome. one. No, no, no. It's awesome. I just didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Another awesome one here is in the miscellaneous section. I hadn't noticed this one. Mutable collection dot swap at. So now if you wanted to say, you know, swap these things in their two positions, um, you've also passed another computer science coding interview question. <laughs> So I've given a choice. Uh, it sounds like for a coding interview, it sounds like the choice is swift because you'll be done in about five seconds. So has, has anyone heard anything about the status of protocol buffers in Swift 4? They were released kind of as a 
beta demo thing in, in Swift 3 by Apple, but are they going to become full citizens, first-class citizens in Swift 4? Anybody know? Ooh, good question. I did not see any sessions covering that or that would seem to cover that. Did, did that come out during, like, Foundation or anything? It's still not at 1.0, but because it's in a separate repository, like, still within the official Swift project, but as a separate repository, I always assumed that it wasn't going to be sort of officially in Foundation or anything like that, but I don't know. I haven't, I don't think they announced anything. It is still like a separate, like you, if you're using like Swift Package Manager, you would add it as a separate um, project or dependency in your um, in your build thing. Um, I just assumed it was going to stay like that as a separate, you know, thing, project. I didn't know it was going to be folded in again into um, Foundation. Well, I didn't say it was. I'm, I'm just asking the question. I'm wondering if it is. Oh, I mean, I think it's on a separate timeline too. Like it could hit 1.0 yeah. next week or something. I don't think they're, I don't think at mm-hmm. least they're waiting um, like for Swift 4 or anything like that. They're just like, no, it's just going to be out when it's out. Um, let me just mm. look at the project. No, it's still getting commits three days ago or something like that, last commit. So they're still working on it. Okay. So a couple of other things we've added in Swift 4 is the ability to have any number of protocols inside of a single class, like we like we used to do in Objective-C. Um, another one of those things where you can have more extensions as well in your class to do that kind of stuff, as opposed to you know conforming all up in the implementation, or not, I guess it's not implementation, in the class declaration, I guess it's called. Now they've got um, a lot of build improvements in Xcode 9, and like uh, one is a pre-compiled bridging header, where in previous builds, you if you had Objective-C and Swift together, and every, for every Swift file, it would it would compile a bridging header for it, where now it's all going to be compiled once and then shared amongst the, the various files. So that's kind of going to be an improvement in terms of uh, compile times, right? We've talked about compile times in the past being problematic, right? And another one was, if you're doing testing, I don't know if you, ever, if you guys do a lot of testing, but every time you go on to run tests, it compiles the entire application and then runs the tests, right? Uh, well, now it'll, it'll if it does a compilation of the of the project and then you want to run tests and then you want to make a change and run the test again, it doesn't recompile the entire application again. So it kind of uses, I guess, a cached version of it. So that's kind of cool. And there's other enhance, enhancements in terms of code size and things like that. Some stuff stuff that happens automatically now in, in the compiler that uh, will make your code smaller and, you know, remove things that aren't being used or, uh, you know, if you're not conforming to protocols and that kind of stuff. So makes it faster. Anything else you want to say about Xcode or Swift 4 or WWDC? Are you guys still there? I mean, I think the, uh, <laughs> I, as I mentioned, um, I did not attend WWDC. And I think, as I mentioned, maybe last week on the, in the episode, the problem with that is that you don't have dedicated time. And I turned out to be super busy right, at work right. because I was yeah. the one responsible yeah. for releasing the app. So I'm well behind. And, and even my sort of notion of like, oh, do at least a video per day. Like I've, I've failed that as well. Like I will have to average like three episodes per day for the next week <laughs> in order to catch up back to the one episode per day sort of thing. So um, definitely been good talking to everybody here about you know what were their you know, sessions they liked or didn't like and that'll help me sort of prioritize my time towards all right i can't watch every one of these things let's just be honest here um which are the ones i'm going to watch and definitely the ones for core ml augmented reality the vision framework stuff i think those are the ones i want to look at um one that's not really it's not specifically technology based for for apple is the uh, what is it engineering for testability that i want to take a look right. at and see what their opinions are because um i like testability not because i'm like 
you know, a diet in the wool TDD lover. Um, I like testability because I'm lazy and doing stuff that's testable makes it easy to like for lazy people such as myself. So as an example, I, I don't like having to fire up the app every time that I want to, you know, try incorporating some sort of new framework or some sort of new, let's say like a API call or something. Like I just want to be able to run like a little unit test and unit tests are great for doing that. Run them fast, r- rinse, repeat until, you know, it finally works and then go incorporate it into your real stuff. And also I'm very curious about doing something like I've seen Kickstarter do where they do their, um, their view layout is all playgrounds based. So they will develop a new, you know, UI view controller subclass by running it through playgrounds. And then, you know, you get your, your auto layout and your stack views and your colors and fonts and everything all set up. And it's great because the REPL will just immediately give you that feedback and say, oh, okay, made a mistake. All right, pause, go to the visual debugger, see what's going on. Okay, stop, go make a change, run it again, go through the visual debugger. Like even with stuff like Reveal and other uh, tool sets, it's still kind of slow compared to the playground. So in any case, the, the only way you can get to that sort of level of, you know, doing UI view controller subclasses and their layouts in a playground is to have something that is designed to be really testable, right? Your, your view controller can't be fat because it will fail to do all sorts of things. I think that's a session I'm interested in viewing. I also heard good things. I didn't attend any of them, but because they were all conflicting with other things, but the design shorts, which I think were originally posted as separate videos, but now I think they've pasted them back together. I think there were maybe three or four of them. Um, it was three and they were like, t- they were like lightning talks, like they do it in its north and places like that. Um, they were like, they, they were together. They were, I think that's what I'd heard. I think they were originally split up. Like session three had like covered like iMessage apps and some other thing and stickers or whatever. But um, I think design shorts two in particular, I forget what was covered, but that one was like, Oh, you have to go back and watch this one. So um, yeah, yeah, I would, I would check cause they're short. So I would definitely check those out as a, a quasi pick there. I watched one and two of those. I thought that um, they were, uh, they had split them up. Anyway, uh, one other thing. That, so the lunch sessions, I don't know if you get to, got to go to any of those, Greg, but um, one is by this guy named the Quadfather. His name is Todd Stablefelt. Um, and his his talk was called Convenience for You is Independence for Me. He's mm. a quadriplegic and he talks about in this talk about how technology in the last four years or so has totally made his life a hell of a lot better um, with all the new advances in in, uh, in technology, right? So, because he's been a quadriplegic since he was a young kid, and uh, you know now he's you know kicking butt and taking names. That's a cool session. There's, I think, the only one that's not published right now is uh, the Michelle Obama talk. So, I believe that one will not be published, though. But yes, 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 revolution will not be televised. <laughs> I have an anti-pick uh, just because I'm feeling salty uh, about not being able to see the Michelle Obama one. Uh, although I, I can totally understand why that would be the case. Um, I spent, as I mentioned, I was interested in the music kit stuff because I have an app idea that I was hoping to, you know, get. Uh, you know, something easy to use out of it um, from Music Kit. And it turns out the Music Kit, as far as I can tell, really, really much of a kit at all. You still have to do a lot of the hard part uh, of hmm. it's like, oh, here's the um, music, uh, the Apple Music API. Guess what? You're going to be concatenating a lot of strings in order to create this URL. It's like, oh, but, but but couldn't you guys do that? I mean, I could write my own wrapper, but why would I need to do that? And then it, as far as I can tell, store, uh, sorry, Music Kit is largely around the store stuff. So the, about the only thing they give you is like, is this user subscribed or not? Can they even subscribe? Because because maybe they're in a managed situation, like, you know, iPads in the classroom sort of thing. Oh, great. Um, if that works out, then you can put a subscribe to Apple Music view controller up. And they have a couple different options as to how you can style that sort of thing and what sort of text you can put. But that one was pretty disappointing to me. Uh, not saying it's not valuable stuff out there for somebody, but, you know, I'd, I'd expected a little bit more out of it, unfortunately. By the way, I think a must-see for most people is going to be, if you do anything that involves a server and, and connecting your app to a server, advances in 
networking part one and part two uh, were really good sessions for that. They talked a lot about the new um, ECN specification, IPv6, what's going to happen with you know the adoption of, of TLS 1.3 when it comes out and 1.2. And Apple is moving pretty aggressively towards that kind of stuff because I think you know user privacy is a huge issue for them and they want to make sure that our apps are speaking in the right formats with the right specifications. And that's, I think they're going to start, you know, um, like similar to how they're mandating we use our reviews, networking is going to be an issue for that as well, right? So that's a must-see, the advanced um, advances in networking part one and two, part two. Did anyone watch or attend what's new in core data? No. What's core data? I'm kidding. No, I didn't yeah, see that. No, one. that's that's <laughs> usually one of the first ones I watch. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. Time this year. Yeah. yeah. That was running at the same time as the uh, what's new in debugging or something like that. So I was at that one yeah. instead. Well, the vision framework one was cool too. That's that's sort of uh, mm -hmm. using um, the vision framework with, with uh, by itself and with CoreML again with the CoreML. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was a good session. And it, by the way, there were 130 sessions. You know, I had to count them. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff to to see here. And I'm I'm just looking scrolling through the list right now and realizing that uh, I've only scratched the surface in terms of how many things there are. Right? I didn't look any of the store kit stuff or device configuration, which is stuff I usually look at as well. Right? Or even the uh, I don't know if I looked at Swift Playgrounds. Did you anybody look at that stuff? Was that the last session? Uh, teaching with Swift Playgrounds or what's new in Swift No, what's, new? what's uh, new? I think that one I missed, but I was at the other uh, teaching with Swift Playgrounds one. That was the last session right, of the right. of the week. Uh -huh. Well, we've picked our favorite sessions. Should we go to Pick Picks? Yeah, let's go to Pick Picks now that we've picked part WWDC. So, Jaime, have you got any picks? I do. Um, the first one up here is a blog post by String Code. Um, that is literally this person's handle, as far as I can tell, by looking at the Twitter account. Um, in any case, they have an example project and a very sort of short explanation of the major areas you'd have to be interested in called uh, ML Camera, which uses the Vision and CoreML frameworks and uh, AV Capture se uh, session with one of the uh, pre-trained models, the recognition models that Apple has available on their website. You can just you know go download it and have fun called Inception V3. So in this one, if you look at the animated GIF, uh, granted this is an audio format, but when you're at home or, or safely in an area that you can go check out the link, which will be in the show notes, they're using the camera to you know get a camera feed and then looking at, oh, let's look at this object. What is it? Oh, it's a cup. What's this one? Oh, it's a plant. What's this other one? It's a pencil or it's a pen, that sort of stuff. Uh, this is a lemon or actually a lime, I should say. It looks pretty easy to do. Like the, the main yeah. parts of what's being explained here is like, oh, that doesn't look hard. It looks like mm, fewer than a hundred lines of code, probably. To do something that's like really kind of powerful with everything that they're giving you with the, the pre-trained model, CoreML, and the vision framework. That's cool. Yeah, this is almost the same as the app that I built that I was talking about earlier, except I didn't use the camera. I just used uh, existing images from the camera roll. But uh, other than that, it's, it's it's almost identical, actually. I even use the same model, the Inception V3 model. So I'm telling you, give it a try. I mean, it's 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 super easy to use this stuff. So was the, is the Inception 3, 3 model already in CoreML format, or did you have to convert it? It's already in CoreML format. There's about a half a dozen models that are available on the developer website. Uh, we can get the link for that uh, and put it in the show notes uh, that are already ready to go. These are all well-known open source uh, models that are out there in the out, the out in the wild that are available for use. And uh, they're real easy. Just drag and drop in and, and go. Cool. So we'll do that. How do you get another one? 
Yes, my second pick, as we were talking about the App Store review guidelines, well, guess what? Um, this is a rehash of a pick, but I don't know, probably from a year ago, because the last time WWDC happened is probably the last time we talked about this. Um, it sh- This App Store review guidelines history shows you what we kind of want, right? We want something like a textual diff, show me the differences of what was added, removed, deleted sort of thing. And this blog post has that pretty well. So you can go read the App Store review guidelines yourself, of course, and, and view the, the ground truth. But sometimes I like to look and see like, what are the big highlights? Like um, what's what's green that's been added? What's red that's been removed? And some of the notes here about uh, some of the highlights on, uh, we talked about how to um, prompt users with the, you know, the Apple provided review prompt rather than, you know, using your own apps that provide a programming interface may now, in some cases, download and run code from the internet, which is specific to like learning situations. And then a couple other minor cases, there's a little bit of, uh, of an opening there for folks. Um, your app splits up a little differently. So app names can only be 30 characters long where the previous limit was 50, but now there's a subtitle feature in, in iTunes Connect. And I think they talked about that in the platform state of the union, but like now you can have long descriptive titles for that rather than, I don't know, just think of all these apps that are trying to be like crossy road or device tracker, all the device tracker apps. Yeah. Uh, that have these absurdly long names that they literally don't even display on the app store because you run out of room and just truncates, but it's, it's in the metadata there somewhere. So it's really just trying to help um, search and everything. Uh, some of these were interesting, like medical apps f- regarding physical harm that um, you have to clearly disclose the data and methodology you've used to support your accuracy claims regarding health. Uh, your metadata has to be accurate for things like, you know, if you decide to promote your in-app purchases on the app store, you got to make sure the display name and description are written for a public audience. Not entirely certain what that means beyond like making understandable. I think we talked about that last week. They're doing things that are kind of sensible. Like you can't use the term for kids, quote unquote, and for children, quote unquote, in app names, unless your app is in the kids category. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Like nobody wants to get something like, oh, this, this app is for kids. Great. And then it's, you know, almost pornography, right? Like it can't be pornography because they don't allow it on the app store. But you know, if it's some sort of questionable thing, that's like sex, drugs, violence, like nobody wants that in the kids sort of section. So now they're, they're being a little bit more, you know, straightforward about that sort of stuff. And there's a lot more on here. Like I'm mm-hmm. not going to be able to go through everything, but that was a, a lot of stuff. And it's a, quite a bit of text to read, even if you just read the diff here. So I definitely appreciate the existence of this site. Cool. Well, speaking of diffs, um, just found a quick thing here, a uh, quick link, and I'm just going to update the link here. So I, what I pasted in the in the show notes is the, just a quick diff between what's uh, changed in uh, iOS 11, between iOS 11 and previous versions. It shows which uh, frameworks and, and uh, things have been added to uh, iOS 11. But if there's another link that comes before this one, which shows what's different in watchOS, tvOS, macOS, as well as iOS 11. Um, so if you guys look at that, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, just a quick list. I think, Mark, you were there was something you used to always look at when you were trying to see what the diffs are between or what's new in... in yeah, um, there, there's always a what's new in... Yeah, right. We saw... Uh, whatever it is, uh, yeah. uh, document that comes out. Yeah, we talked was, about this last week when, when you were away. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so I think that's what... Yeah, because we had the what's new in iOS and what's new in Xcode 9, I think, last week. But uh, mm-hmm. this is just a, if you're curious about what's been changed, what's removed, that kind of stuff from the various OSs that are from Apple. <laughs> so, Mr. Oh, so Tammy, what have you got for us? <laughs> 
Sorry, what my is cat's that? Gone. My cat's gone. That's a cat, believe it or not. He's, he's, he's gone blind and and uh, he's like 17, 18 years old. He's blind and he can't, I think he's deaf now too. He just stands at the top of the stairs and hollers, right? So he's nuts. Sorry, Tam, go ahead. So my pick, no surprise here, is uh, Visual Studio Code. I know everybody's all WWDC this and WWDC that, but this is my pick for this week for sure. Isn't that a Microsoft product? It is. I know. You know, and I've been wearing shorts and no socks for two days. I think the world is going to end. I really do. And I'm not wearing a hat right now, so I'm pretty sure that the world is going to end. I think think you should start wearing socks and sandals, to be honest with you. (laughs) No. I think we need a selfie or the hat thing never happened. (laughs) No selfies. No way. But yeah, Visual Studio Code. Let me tell you something about that, though. I said that I was using it for Unity development, uh, but it, you can get a lot of different extensions for it. So Unity, for me, I'm, I'm using C-sharp for it. But with all these different extensions, you can just get it to do some other things that you need it to do. And it's a free download, and obviously it's for the Mac. And yes, it's a Microsoft product, so um, it's weird that I'm making that my pick, but I am, totally am. There's quite a few extensions here. So I see some that support Python, Go, Ruby, Node.js, tons of stuff here. It sounds like you were doing the Unity one. Yeah, definitely using it for the C-sharp with, you know, as as a Unity code Mm -hmm. editor. But I might start using it for my Python code too. I'm not sure. They also have a Swift language extension as well. Well, now let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> PHP, if you're doing some PHP in oh, Nginx, interesting. Yeah, it's, the, the extensions is crazy stuff. how much they have. Docker. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff here beyond what I would typically expect to have in a, in a code editor. So quite intriguing. And the install went really well. Like I, I was expecting to, to have to start drinking again, but no, didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good. All right, Mr. Hill, let's have it. I'm pretty sure this is definitely a repick, probably again from last year. But um, for those digital pack rats like myself, it's two GitHub projects to sort of mass download all of the uh, WWDC goodness staying on the theme as well. I think there was a script that downloaded absolutely everything, which I couldn't find. But these are the two that I had from last year, and they still work. So one, they unfortunately have the same name. So if you clone these from GitHub, they'll like complain because the name's already taken. Um, but anyway, so they're both called WWDC Downloader. One is from... Um, I have to look this up. Uh, Olivier Hoachuk and the others from Johan Farenkrog, two names that I cannot pronounce, so I apologize for that. So one of them will download all of the videos, and then the other one will download the sample code. So again, nice. if you're a digital pack rat and you must have HD quality videos of everything to store and back up yourself onto, you know, Backblaze or whatever, then uh, you can run these scripts, download the videos, and then have them all available. And then the, maybe the secondary pick slash tip is to use something like VLC. I think QuickTime does it too, but I usually use VLC and watch the videos at like 1.2 speed, which I think you guys talked about last mm-hmm. week as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I usually, yeah. 1.2 or 1.25 is usually a pretty good, um, you know, Really, I've been watching them at 1.5. 1.5? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm old. I can't understand them that quickly. I'm so 1.25, I can, I can follow along. So, um, right. yeah, those are my picks. Two scripts. I think one is even written in Swift. The other one is a Ruby script. Um, so you can always browse the source code for them if you want to as well. Um, yeah, WDC downloaders. 
Cool. So, Jaime, last week we talked about the, the downloading of um, stuff, and there was somebody tweeted us uh, a, um, you know, you highlight the, the video, inspect element, uh, expect element on the video, and then add a playback at, you know, 1.4 speed. Did yeah. you try that out at all? Anybody? I've been trying to figure it out. I haven't been figured it out yet, so. I did not. That yeah, was the streaming option, right, to go in and, and tell it to Yeah, if you're app. in Safari, you can update mm-hmm. the video. Yeah, I'm, I like downloading them, so I have not. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm downloading them like an animal, too. Too, so yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and watching them on my apple tv which only freezes up every third time so but mac was sleeping on the couch yesterday and he he rolled over on the um on the remote and uh, so the apple tv started playing wwc videos oh nice animal. yeah do dog paws are they uh do they respond to capacitive touch no i don't know but he was like you know he, I know, he was on 100, the 100 pounds yeah. so yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah i wonder if they could control the uh control the you know i don't see why are not. they human are they like human skin or are they like just leathery bits that aren't don't have any capacitance I wonder. Three bits. Hmm. Oh, more than just good. Don't yeah. know. Way, yeah. way more. Yeah. Dog <laughs> paw anatomy. The, the See, well, I've, I've, heard, I've, I've heard you can use other appendages to do touch ID and stuff like that too, but yeah. I'm not going to go there. Yeah, but like, okay, so let's go with that one. So, well, not exactly that one, but let's go with the dog paws <laughs> capacitors thing. So, you know, there are people who are used like animals to unlock their phone with touch ID. So if you were to use your dog's paw, let's say, mm-hmm. and use their paw print as mm-hmm. the print, it might work. I mean, why not, That's right? Kind of using a like a not a camera, but I don't know. I don't know actually. Isn't that more like a visual thing rather than a capacitance thing, like the Touch ID? Maybe I don't exactly know. I, yeah, I, me I, I, I have okay. to double check. But it does. If you think about it, it does become a two-factor authentication piece yeah. because you have this other. <laughs> if you turn your pet into a dongle yeah. that you use to access for security, look, look, they can confiscate your phone, the border, all they want. What are they going to do? They're, nobody knows it's your dog's paw, nor do they know right, which right, paw and maybe even which finger or claw. I guess on the on the Pause. So, like, your phone is going to reset dog, itself yeah. after ten times, right? You like, can label them, though. You can label them, though. Yeah, Do- puppy, you know, left paw, finger two, puppy, or something like that. Uh, or just you don't have to say puppy. You just you know, right foot, first finger, right, whatever. And you have to put yeah. your dog with your bag of dongles, though, so that would not, you know, it might chew your USB cable. So maybe that's not a good idea. And this is, you know, yeah. like those cats, those like weirdo cats that have six claws. Like that's a huge security advantage. You've added a very large, significant percentage of possibility. <laughs> <laughs> to your security. Are you talking about the main coon cat, are you? Yeah, I think so. I think those are the ones that have them. Yeah. Main coon cat. Yeah, they're huge. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, uh, hey, Jaime, if people want to find you on the internet webs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. And Greg, where would they look for you? They should, after looking up Jaime, they should also look me up on Twitter. I'm at Greg Hio. And of course, Tammy has to be different. Tammy, where are you on the internet? I'm at Dev with the hat. No, I'm just kidding. That's, <laughs> that's not who I, that I was am. Tim. Wait a minute. I thought Tim was Dev with the hat. No. No, no. Um, yeah, Tammy, you Dev with you'll, the have to, you'll have to come to Denver and find out what, what uh, we do with that there, Greg. Okay. Um, Paradox927. On Twitter. On Twitter, yeah. Uh, actually, right. on Paradox927 everywhere. LinkedIn, just, everywhere. Just yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. All right, and Mark, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Mark R at smapsoft.com or send one of these other guys a Twitter and they'll get in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the easiest way, I think, right? Yeah. 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 And as at the top of the show, I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And until next week, we'll say goodbye. 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 Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items to be talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. 
If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you could please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right. Now that we're in the after show, let's talk about two-factor authentication. I yeah, t- Tim, you were getting Tim, you were yeah, getting so, real salty about two-factor authentication. You, well, you were so not here, convinced at the security mechanism. Well, no, it's not so much from, not from it's, hackers it's, it's, it's stealing all your inconvenience factors. Inconvenience factor. So, so um, I decided, you know, I was running out of space on my phone and it kept complaining, kept complaining. So, I, and so I read Aaron, Aaron Douglas's article on how iCloud is the best way to go for for internet cloud storage of your photos. So I said, okay, fine. You know, it was a dollar. Or thirty nine or something for five gigs or whatever, which is not bad for my phone. And then I thought, well, you know, Carol and I, I actually have two Apple IDs. I have one Apple ID that I use for all my iCloud and contacts and and my uh, all my all my iCloud stuff, right? And that's my old dot Mac address. But I use another Apple ID for my for my purchases on iTunes, and I've always done that. And Carol and I, you know, we share the same uh, identities, for, so we have the same content. So we've never really needed sharing. And then, so I thought, well, I've I've upgraded myself to iCloud Photo. And Carol has way more photos than I do, so I thought I would upgrade her. And then it turned out I had to pay even more money for her because she has more phone, more photos on her phone than I do. And somehow in setting up the family sharing, I accidentally turned on two-factor. I already had two-factor authentication on my iCloud account, but I didn't have it on my iTunes account because I use it for developing and my, my game center and all that kind of stuff, right? And all of a sudden, so I accidentally, invertedly, I wasn't really watching what I was doing, but I turned on two-factor authentication on my iTunes ID. And then now now everything has gone to like not remembering that I have an iTunes account. So I have to do it on my Mac. I have to do it on every Mac I own. I have to do the two-factor authentication on every iOS device I have to do it on. And and even when I purchase things from the App Store, I have to do two-factor authentication. It's just like I get that it's secure and stuff like that, but you know, I, and then I, I dread turning it off because the it says you can turn it off if you like, but you'll have to answer you know these questions three before you can cross the bridge, right? And even though I know the answers, but I've had my Apple ID locked out before, and I'm just not looking forward to having it done again. So, so that was my complaint about about two factor authentication. It's just nuts how many things that that I use my Apple ID on. So I know Mark use two factor authentication with yours, right? How's your like? Does it remember from device to device? Is it just a matter of registering the device with uh, two factor yeah, authentication? I, mean, I never have it. Have You'll any get prompted with it. With it yeah? I mean, it's I use it when I signed up for stuff, and I had to do it, and I haven't heard from it since. Really. Yeah. So, but I didn't turn it on for App Store purchases, though. So you, you can turn it off for that specifically, or how does it? How does that work? I don't. I don't remember, but I know that when I do App Store purchases, I don't have to do it. Right. Right. Likewise, yeah. I, I, I just. Turned, I honestly don't remember how I set it up. Yeah. Likewise, I just set mine up to protect my Apple ID accounts. So that way, nobody could do anything crazy with it. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't even know that the App Store stuff was an option. It may not have been an option when I signed up. I, I, I'm not sure. It's not like the sort oh, of I, thing you do every day. So maybe you it, saw the latest 
latest and greatest. Well, it's interesting because I, I because I set up a lot of machines at work now. In the latest versions of, of uh, Mac OS, they're really pushing two-factor authentication. You know how they, when you enroll your device, they want to they want you to set up a Touch ID. They want you to set up an app, uh, an iCloud account. They want you to set up, even though you already got one set up, if you're doing an, an upgrade, they also want you to set up Siri now, and then they also want you to opt into sending, uh, you know, debug data to them when apps crash, right? But they're also pushing this this uh, Touch ID thing. Like if you, sorry, not Touch ID, but two-factor authentication, because, you know, every device we have at work is asking for that now, right? And we can't use it because we don't have access to iCloud at work, right? Because of our firewall. But um, yeah, it's like every every machine and like Carol's machine upstairs right now is asking for two-factor two authentication. And it's like, remember I joked last last week about not being able to teach my mom how to do multi-touch, you know, on, on an iPad. Um, it's the same thing with with uh, with Touch ID and two-factor authentication with Carol. It's because it's just going to be, it's a learning curve for the, for the um, what were you calling them last week, Jaime, the, uh, the people we support, you know, in our lives, right? Yeah, people who don't, you know, live and breathe this not- stuff, right? Like the, the average normal person. Yeah, you know, we, we're talking about we're talking about geeking out and using our dogs and, and other animals yeah. to, yeah, to yeah. secure our devices with Touch ID. Like the average person just really needs to know, hey, register your fingerprint and then you don't have to, and I guess remember this unlock code. Um, but, but you know, th- that's it, right? It's it's more secure than, than having other stuff, but it, it still takes some sort of explanation as to how that works. Yeah, so, so to me, and I, I know we've talked about it in the past that the Touch ID is actually not that super accurate, right? Because it's only taking a very small sampling of your finger. But I mean, you would think that that biometric identification is enough to prove to Apple that you are who you say you are, or, or you would. I guess that data doesn't actually leave the phone. Then I guess, right? Um, so look, I just pasted something in the. Yeah, and I, as I just noticed, a notification came up on my screen that said somebody's added an I an iCloud account added. And I'm here, I'm going, oh, oh my god, again here, and something else. I have to figure out which device is looking for something. But yeah, so good. No, this Sorry, is, Tammy. this is related to the app specific passwords, which will be required to sign into iCloud with third party apps from June 15th, which is tomorrow. And uh, I don't know if you guys knew about that or not. You know, I just got a notification. It just turned midnight here, right? And yeah. a, a notification just popped up saying iCloud account added. Mm-hmm. If you what don't migrate to app-specific passwords by June 15th, that's the deadline, then those apps will stop working, <laughs> just in case you wanted to know. <laughs> what? So, I think that's look, just for mail. What are the third-party applications that you could have on your iCloud? Jesus. If you use like the Apple Contacts and Apple Mail apps, I think Outlook or uh, Google Calendar or something. Then I think those ones, yeah, mail, you'll need the calendar, app events, passes. and contacts. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the best part. I just put my password in. I don't have my phone with me. What the hell? It's it's just unchecked all of my iCloud storage stuff. See, this is what, what you... aggravates the hell out of me. Apple is drunk, man. No, it's not that they're drunk, and it's not just Apple. I hate when I hate when other companies or other people dictate to an individual how they should manage their accounts yeah. and their computer systems. And when they do stuff like this in an attempt to make your stuff more secure, or whatever the case is, or we want you to use this that way, it drives me crazy. It's like, how about I, you let me use it the way I want? to use it and if i if i run the risk of a security breach or breaking something because i didn't use it the proper way that's on me that's not on you right it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt. if i want to be an idiot and fly through the windshield of my car that should be my choice now i think i'm going to put a seatbelt on because that's the wise thing and i think i'm going to try and secure my passwords and my data as best i can but this forcing now tim you're sitting there you don't have your phone you can't log in it's making changes on you 
apps that you may have used. Not many people knew that this was coming. I didn't. See, I did, <laughs> right. but I didn't tell you. Well, that's an interesting analogy that you brought up. And it was the exact one I was going to bring up uh, to argue the opposite direction. It's like, well, you know, seatbelt uh, seat laws, right? Like uh, there are some scenarios where seatbelts are actually a very large disadvantage, right? So if you have gone off the pier in your vehicle and it's filling up with water, um, sometimes seatbelts don't come off and you might end up uh, floundering under the water there, panicking for a while. Um, that case doesn't usually happen. And I think that's sort of the case that Tim himself has run into with all these different accounts and, and trying to do family sharing and all these other things that were sort of added on after the fact. Whereas for most people, you know, seatbelts work out pretty well that, you know, you're in a relatively minor fender bender. You don't get seriously hurt. You don't fly through the window, I think, as you brought up, where it, it's some loss of liberty, but at a much greater gain in security relative, you know, for that trade-off. Now, come on, you know, my tinfoil hat will not allow me to agree with you that trading liberties and security, they should be separate. You shouldn't have to trade any of your freedom for any perceived security. That's just well, maybe, the tinfoil hat thing, you know? Well, maybe we compromise. You you put your tinfoil hat on top of your helmet <laughs> and then we meet somewhere in the middle. Put a little seatbelt on and we're good. <laughs> you can put tinfoil on your seatbelt too. <laughs> yeah, that, that might work. But you know what I'm saying? Like I, I could see, I could see that there is a need for this technology and there are people that absolutely need this, but to force it, I guess that's what I'm, that's where my issue is. Give us the technology. Let us choose whether or not we want to use it or apply it in our daily lives. If we do, great, you know, kudos for us, the ones who are choosing to do it. But there are some people who, for whatever reason, they don't need it or they don't want it. Or you're, you know, a hundred years old and you really don't need all this to factor authentication. You just want to open your computer and go on the web. Yeah, I think the minimum bar is just kind of moving up. Like back in the old days when you had Windows computer, or I guess Macs too, and there's like, there's no user and there's no password. And now it would be like, oh my God, you have a computer, a laptop connected to the internet and you don't have a password set on it. And we'd be like, that's crazy. Um, but I don't know. I think it's just the minimum bar is creeping up for security where it's like, oh, of course you have to have a password. It doesn't have to be a good password. Like just have the word password or, you know, password one, two, three, but thanks for giving my password out, Greg. What Jeez. if your computer gets stolen, right? So I think two-factor auth is one of those things where it's like, you know, back in the days when you just had a desktop computer in your house that didn't move, and it was like, I don't need the password. That's silly. But I don't know. I think we are moving towards that. I guess it's unfortunate because, you know, it's because what happens people when trying you break to steal your, your iPhone? What if, you know, what if you, I know, granted, it's it's the one-offs, and I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about that. For the majority of people, this is not a problem, and I'm, I'm probably focused way too much on that small percentage of people that it is a problem for, but you know, you're going along and you break your phone or now you don't have access to your phone for one reason or the other. You've, you've been at, you've been locked out of your iPhone account, your iTunes account, your iCloud account before, right? I think there is still an opt out because I installed iOS 11 on finally on one of my spare phones and then it turned on, you know, thanks for opting into two-factor authentication, but there was a way to opt out and to go with the, um, they used to give you like a really long kind of UUID, GUID looking thing. And they're like, this is your override code. Store this in a safe place and write it down. Kind of like they do for like File Vault. And, you know, if you ever lose your phone or whatever, then this is like 
your last resort password. And they were like, that's gone now. But if you still want that, you can still get that from what I saw. So I think there was some kind of way to opt out of it all. Um, I didn't, I don't think I did it because I was like, oh, that's fine. I'll, I, you know, I have lots of devices to use to unlock. But I think there is some way to kind of opt out of it. It's like agreeing to all the license agreements. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think, I think it's a good default to have it on, but then opt out. So if it is opting out of the things that you want, Tammy, which I think it might be, I have to look at it again. And plus it's a beta, so who knows? But I think, I think it's a good compromise oh, to I have don't... it by default and have, you know, nerds who know opt out. Yeah. For me, I don't care one way or the other. You know, I just, I'm thinking of the, the people who barely know how to use their phones and computers. Those are the people who call me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because. But I mean, I would say those are also the people who are not going to use, um, a separate calendar app or like, you know, I want to use Fantastical and sync it with my iCloud. Like, like, you know, people who are going to do that will know about, well, I don't know, I'll just say it, will know about app-specific passwords, for example. But normal people who don't care are just going to need mail and it's just going to work as it always has because they'll sign in with their Apple, Apple ID and look at their mail, they get their contacts and that's it. They won't be like, you know what I need? I need a separate app to manage my contacts. Like, you know, nobody's going to do that. Yeah, that's a very valid point too. That's I'll bring up one consider. super... Um, thing that I hate is web forms on while we're on the topic web forms that don't let you paste that just drives me crazy. Oh, Why? Yeah, Why? I yeah, agree. Yeah. And then I think I tweeted in anger at Bank of America and they're like, it's more secure. I'm like, that is, that is making me angrier. How is this more secure? Anyway, it drives me crazy. Not just for passwords, but when you add, like, you know, I get a new credit card and I want to add it to my payment, like to pay the credit card and they don't let you paste. I'm like, why are you making me type it in? I have it in one password or I can copy and paste it from my e-statement and then that would be totally, I would never make a mistake. But they're like, you have to type it in twice and you can't paste. I'm like, how is this better? So anyway, it drives me crazy. Disallowing paste. So I think I have one of those extensions that disallows disallowing paste. Yeah. It's definitely one of those situations where I'm like, oh God, why Why did I have to tune one password to use the maximum settings on this particular password? Now I have to type in my passphrase. It's like 30 words, each of which is 10 characters long, very carefully into this mobile web form. Yeah. So I I let me ask once. you, do you, have, do, you have certain, do you have certain passwords that you'll not make super, super crazy just because you know you have to type it in? I mean, I'm not uh, talking about your yeah. banking stuff. I'm talking about, like, you know, Netflix or something crazy like that. No. Maybe that Netflix was probably a bad um, yeah. example. But, no, you know, I something think- that's not, like crazy i think well, that was actually a good example for my case yeah oops sorry i was gonna say i've migrated everything over to one password and and uh over time i've been using their generate password function to yeah. change you know what are t- essentially weak passwords right so in my case uh so tammy like netflix is actually one of those ones that's kind of funny um the netflix password is specifically weaker because i share it uh with my fiance we use the same account and inevitably she'll be on some sort of device it's like oh i, I need to log into this i'm like all right uh i don't want to go through the crazy effort of, it, of even using something as simple as one password for teams i'm just gonna use <laughs> let's just use like a simple password we have it written down it's in the house she knows where to go get it if i'm not around um like i'm on a business trip so she can go find it oh there it is and she you know adds it to her ipad or her phone or something and she goes along her merry way like i watch it like a hawk right like i because i know that it's it's you know it's not password one two three um it, it's much more secure it's at least password one two three four five right, right. and a, and a four <laughs> Maybe instead throw of or something like that right (laughs) an exclamation point you're good all right i i I wasn't sure if i was the only one who does stuff like that because i've got some what i call like low-level accounts that you know i don't really 
care too much if they get broken into. But I just know that to try and type in those one password generated passwords, that's a nightmare when you can't do a copy and paste. Yeah, I found passwords yeah. are pretty good. It's usually things like, you know, some like, like from the old days where you have some web form and it's like, enter your email. And it's like, confirm your email. It's like, why would that? <laughs> like they want you to type it in twice and they don't allow pasting? It's usually that stuff. But passwords, I think, I don't think I've had the problem pasting in a password in a while. But it always seems to be that kind of thing, like an account number or your email address, which is just totally silly, I think. Um, and those things don't allow pasting. But passwords, I think I've pretty much, like Tim, converted to one passwords generate password, which is like, I have it set to like 20 characters, you know, two digits, three symbols or whatever. And I don't think I've had a problem with that yet. I haven't had to type one in in a long time. Well, we didn't talk about that uh, new password autofill thing, which is going to use the Safari passwords, you know, the, those generated yeah. passwords from Safari. Yeah. Yeah. Those are uh, going to be interesting. Hmm. Sure hope there's an yeah, I think we had some crosstalk yeah. about that. I think it's going to be awesome. I mean, the, the, the one weak point about the whole uh, iCloud password system is that it doesn't work with apps until now, and then this fixes that whole. So I think it's going to be great, assuming people adopt it. Yeah. And I, and I think app makers should. I mean, I'm assuming it's relatively easy to do so. Um, a lot of folks are wondering, like, well, what does this mean for something like 1Password? And, and I say this as somebody who likes 1Password, and I, I use it, I subscribe. Um, the thing that the app fill or password autofill stuff does not do is, um, you know, it doesn't do multi-platform. So if you're on Android, if you're on Windows, if you're somewhere else, uh, you know, like you know, just normally doing stuff on the web, other platforms, like you're out of luck. And and 1Password does cover those cases. And even within singular platform, I happen to be a Chrome user on the Mac. I don't use Safari. And so unless, you know, password autofill becomes something that's extensible to other browsers, even within the Mac, I would be sort of left out if I was to use that as my only option. Yeah. Now, I think for a, a lot of folks, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, about like, you know, most people just use what's on there, you know? Oh, I bought a new MacBook. Oh, here's this thing that I use to go on the internet. Okay, I'll use that. That's great. It works perfectly fine for them, right? Like I, I went out of the, the normal bounds and I was like, oh, well now I have to do this more complicated scheme. I have to use something like one password in order to handle the sort of like more advanced scenario. So is the autofill specific to Safari or is it or is it more of a iCloud uh, password technology and maybe they use Safari web views inside the app to have access to it? No, I thought if you but have a text field to. set to password and they detect like the name of it is username and the name of it is password, then it will offer the autofill. I thought yeah. that's how it worked, right? So it's not, not web. Yeah, I thought oh, so really? Too. Okay. Yeah. So, so it is yeah. something you could do from other browsers like Chrome and Firefox? Um, the way it works is if you go to a website and you register with Safari browser, right, and then you go to that same, um, if, if your app is on the same um, domain or, or whatever, there's a key a button that p- appears on the login screen and you can tap it and it'll show all of your saved passwords, right? Um, but if it's the if the domain matches what you registered, then it'll it'll shortlist adjust the, the the password saved for that domain, and then it'll autofill that password. That's how it works. Right, but it's but we're talking about the stuff in in the app, not yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, no that's, that's what I'm talking. I'm saying, but the, yeah. the password that the, the goofy looking looks like a a, a social insurance number or a, or a, a yeah. phone yeah. number with the dashes in it. That's the password that that gets offered to you in your app. So what you do is you like for instance, if you're you know app server dot what appserver.rubin.com or whatever is where you register accounts, right? When somebody logs in to create an account and they go to your app, you know, Rubin Automatic, right? And, and it uses the same server uh, domain, then then uh, the Safari passwords that are saved in your in your Safari keychain are the ones that are presented to you to be able to use. And then you as add a couple... To, and you add as a couple, opposed to what's in your regular iCloud keychain, you're saying? Well, no, it's the same thing. It was Safari iCloud keychain, whatever, whatever that magic right, keychain right. That, that Apple, still, Apple saves for you. But that... Right. Those, right. so those you don't passwords. necessarily have to use 
use Safari to have access to it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't use that that mechanism with any other browser. But but does yeah, that does that work that, that way in, in Chrome? Does Chrome use iCloud? I know. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's Safari yeah. browser and native apps will have it, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And since Chrome is just a web view, I don't know. Maybe it'll work in there. I don't, I'm not sure actually. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, maybe Chrome uses under the hood uses the Safari web view. I think they use a WK web view because they want to put their own stuff around it, so it's not a Safari view controller. Mm-hmm. I think it may not work, but I don't right. know. We have to see. Right. But they could use a Safari web view for authentication purposes whenever they need to do this kind of thing. Uh, but how would it know? Like, you know, they have to swap between them, and I don't think they share cookies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have to see what Chrome does. Yeah. I guess I Firefox, know. too. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, Thank you for inviting me on the show again. You're welcome. Great to see those, those ratings plummet every time I come on. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> 